international short stories volume two english stories this is a librebox recording all librebox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by gaby cowan international short stories volume two english stories edited by william patton section nine the burial of the tithe by samuel lover part one with the help of a surgeon he might yet recover shakespeare it was a fine morning in the autumn of eighteen thirty two and the sun had not yet rubbed the grass of its dew as a stout-built peasant was moving briskly along a small by-road in the country of tipperary the elasticity of his step bespoke the lightness of his heart and the rapidity of his walk did not seem sufficient even for the exuberance of his glee for every now and then the walk was exchanged for a sort of dancing shuffle which terminated with a short capering kick that threw up the dust about him and all the while he whistled one of those whismical jig tunes with which ireland abounds and twirled his stick over his head in a triumphal flourish then off he started again in his original pace and hummed a rollicking song and occasionally broke out into soliloquy why then and isn't the great day entirely for ireland that is in this blessed day who oh, your soul to glory but well do the job complete and here he got a caper devil a more they'll ever get and it's only a pity they ever got any but there's an end of them now they cut down from this out and here he made an appropriate downstroke of his shillelagh through a bunch of thistles that skirt the road where will be their grand doings now eh i'd like to know that where'll their be lazy liverin' servants oh woe and he sprang lightly over a stile and what will they do for their coaches and for here a lark sprang up at his feet and darted into the air with his thrilling rush of exquisite melody fate you've given me my answer sure enough my poor dillard that's as much as to say they may go whistle for them oh my poor fellows how pity ye is and here he broke into a turalaloo and danced along the path then suddenly dropping into silence he resumed his walk and applying his hand behind his head cocked up his coffin and began to rub behind his ear according to the most approved peasant practice of assisting the power of reflection faith and it's myself that's puzzled to know well the proctors and the process savers and praises do at all by gorra they must go rough and the road since they won't be let to rough any more in the fields roving is all that is left for them for sure they couldn't turn to any honest trade after the courses they have been used to 
oh what a power of miscreants will be out of bread for the want of their old trade or false swearing why the vagabonds will be lost barring their scent to both and indeed if a bridge could be built of false oaths by my soakings they could swear themselves there without wetting their feet here he overtook another peasant whom he accosted with a universal salutation of god save you god save you kindly was returned for an answer and is it yourself that's there mikey noonan said the one first introduced to the reader indeed it's myself and nobody else said noonan and where is it you're going this fine morning and is it yourself that's axing that same mikey why where is i would be going but to the bearing i thought so in troth it's yourself that is always ripe and ready for fun and small blame to me why then it was a mighty complete thing whoever it was that thought of making a bearing out of it and don't you know not to my knowledge why then who'd you think now laid it all out fakes i don't know maybe that's peter colonelly no it wasn't though peter's a cute chap guess again well was it phil mulligan no it wasn't though you made a good offer at it sure enough for it wasn't phil it was his sister they're alive is it biddy it was skewered to the one else oh she's the curious creature in life there is not a trick out that's not up to and more besides by the powders or war she'd bait a field full of lawyers at scheming she's the devil's pity why then but it was a great idea entirely you may say that in truth maybe it's we won't have the fun but see who's before us there isn't that old Krugan? sure enough by that why then isn't he the real fine old cock to come so far to see the rights of the thing Fax, he was always the right sort sure in ninety-eight as i hear he was maltreated a power and his place rummaged and himself almost killed because he couldn't inform on his neighbours god's blessing be an him and the likes of him that couldn't prove traitor to a friend in distress here they came up with the old man to whom they alluded he was the remains of a stately figure and his white hair hung at some length round the back of his head and his temples while a black and well-marked eyebrow overshadowed his keen grey eye the contrast of the dark eyebrow to the white hair rendered the intelligent cast of his features more striking as he was altogether a figure that one would not be likely to pause without notice he was riding a small horse at an easy pace and he answered the rather respectful salutation of the two foot passengers with kindness and freedom they addressed him as mr coogan while to them he returned the familiar term voice and of course it's going to the very you are mr coogan and long life to you 
aye boys it is hard for an old horse to leave off his tricks old is it fakes and it's yourself that has more heart in you this blessed morning than many a man that's not half your age by that i'm not a cold boys though i'd kick up by hill sometimes well you'll never do it younger sir but sure why wouldn't you be there when all the country's going i hear and no wonder sure by the hole in my hat is enough so it is to make a sick man leave his bed to see the fun that'll be in it and sure it's right and proper and shows the spirit that is in the country when a man like yourself mr coogan joins the poor people in doing it i like to stand up for the right answered the old man and always was a good warrant to do that same said larry in his most laudatory tone will you tell us who's that furnished us and the road there asked the old man as he pointed to a person that seemed to make his way with some difficulty for he laboured under an infirmity of limb that caused a grotesque jerking action in his walk if walk it might be called why Dean, don't you know him mr coogan by that i thought there wasn't a parish in the country that didn't know poor hoopy holigan it has been often observed before the love of sobriquet that the irish possess but let it not be supposed that their nicknames are given in a spirit of unkindness far from it a sense of the ridiculous is so closely interwoven in a irish nature that he will even jest upon his own misfortunes and while he indulges in a joke one of the few indulgences he can command the person that excites it may as frequently be the object of his open-heartedness as his mirth and is that hoppy hooligan said old coogan i often heard of him to be sure but i never seen him before oh then you may see him before and behind now said larry and indeed if he had a match for that odd skirt of his coat he wouldn't be the worse if it and if trot the corduroys themselves aren't a bit too good and there is the least taste in life of his whisht said the old man he's looking back and maybe he hears you not he ain't trot sure he's partly bothered how can he play the fiddle then and be bothered said coogan fakes and that's the very reason he is bothered sure he moiders the ears off of him entirely with the noise of his own fiddle oh he's a powerful fiddler so i often heard indeed said the old man he bangs all the fiddlers in the country and is in the greatest request added noonan yet he looks tattered enough said old coogan sure you never seen a well-dressed fiddler yet said larry indeed and now you remind me i believe not said the old man i suppose they all get more kicks than halfpence as the saying is devil a many kicks hooligan gets he's a great favourite entirely why is he in such distress then asked coogan fate he's not in distress at all he's welcome everywhere he goes and has the best of eating and drinking 
the place affords wherever he is and picks up the coppers fast at the first and is no way necessitated in life though indeed it can't be denied as he limps along there that he has a great many ups and downs in the world this person of whom the preceding dialogue treats was a celebrated fiddler in these parts and his familiar name of hoopy holligan was acquired as the reader may already have perceived from his limping gait this limp was a consequence of a broken leg which was one of the consequences of an affray which is a certain consequence of a fair in Tipperary. Hooligan was a highly characteristic specimen of an Irish fiddler. As Larry Lanigan said, you never seen a well-dressed fiddler yet, but Hooligan was a particularly ill-fledged bird of the musical tribe. His corduroys have already been hinted at by Larry, as well as his coat, which had lost half the skirt thereby partially revealing the aforesaid corduroys or if one might be permitted to indulge in an image the half skirt that remained served to produce a partial eclipse of the disc of cordery this was what we painters call picturesque by the way the vulgar are always amazed that some tattered remains of anything is more prized by the painter than the freshest production in all its gloss of novelty the fiddler's stockings too in the neglected falling of their folds round his leg and the wisp of straw that fringed the opening of his gaping brogues were valuable additions to the picture and his hat but stop let me not presume his hat it would be a vain attempt to describe there are two things not to be described which to know what they are you must see these two things are taglioni's dancing and an irish fiddler's head the one is a wonder in action the other an enigma in form hooligan's fiddle was a great curiosity as himself and like its master somewhat the worse of wear it had been broken some score of times and yet by dint of glue was continued in what an antiquary could call a fine state of preservation that is to say there was rather more of glue than wood in the article the stringing of the instrument was a great a piece of patchwork as itself and exhibited great ingenuity on the part of its owner many was the knot above the fingerboard and below the bridge that is when the fiddle was in the best order for in case of fractures on the field of action that is to say at way patron or fair where the fiddler unlike the girl he was playing for had not two strings to his bow in such case i say the old string should be knotted whatever it might require to be and i have heard it insinuated that the music was not a bit the worst of it indeed the only economy that poor hooligan ever practised was in the strings of his fiddle and those were an admirable exemplification of the proverb of making both ends meet hooligan's waistcoat too was a curiosity 
or rather a cabinet of curiosities for he appropriated its pockets to various purposes snuff resin tobacco a clasp knife with a half blade a piece of flint a doodin and some bits of twine and ends of fiddle-strings were all huddled together promiscuously hooligan himself called his waistcoat noah's ark for as he said himself there was a little of everything in it barring money and that would never stay in his company his fiddle partly enfolded in a scanty bit of old base was tucked under his left arm and his right was employed in helping him to hobble along by means of a black thorn stick when he was overtaken by the three travellers already named and saluted by all with the addition of a query as to where he was going and where would i be going but the bearing said hooligan trot is the same answer i expected said lanigan it could be nothing at all without you i've played at many weddings said hooligan but i'm thinking there will be more fun at this bearing than any ten weddings indeed you may say that hoppy agra said noonan why din hoppy jewel said lanigan what did the skirt of your coat do to you that you left it behind you and wouldn't let it see the fun did then i'll tell you larry my boy i was going last night by the by-road that runs up the back of the old house nigh hand the witty cases and i hear that people was living in it since i travelled the road last and so i opened the old iron gate that was as stiff in the hinge as a miser's fist and the road ladding up to the house looking as lonely as a churchyard and the grass growing out through it and says i to myself i'm thinking it's few darkness your doors says i god be with the time the old squire was here that stayed at home and didn't go abroad out his own country letting the fine stately old place go to rack and ruin and faix i was turning back and i wish i did when i see a man coming down the road and so i waited till he came up to me and i asked him if any one was up at the house jeez says he and with that i hear terrible barking entirely and a great big lump of a dog turned the corner of the house and stood crawling at me i'm afraid this dog's in it says i to the man jeez said he but they're quiet so with that i wind my way and he wind his way but my jewels the minute i got into the yard nine great vagabonds of dogs fell on me and i thought they'd ate me alive and so they would i believe only i had a cold bones of mate and some practice that mrs mcgrain god bless her made me put in my pocket when i was going the road as i was leaving her house that morning after the christening that was in it and sure enough lashings and lavings was there oh that's the woman has a heart as big as a king's and her husband too in truth he's a decent man and keeps mightily fine drink in his house well as i was saying the gold mate and pratties was in my pocket 
and by gore the thieving murdering villains of dogs may a dart at the pocket and dragged it clan up and thin my dear with fighting among themselves striving to come at the mate the skirt of my coat was in smithereens in one minute devil a lie in it not a tatter if i was left together and it's only a wonder i came off with my life fade i think so said lanigan and wasn't it mightily providential they didn't come at the fiddle sure what would the country do then sure enough you may say that said hooligan and then my bread would be gone as well as my mate but think of the unnatural vagabond that told me the dogs was quiet sure he came back while i was there and i ups and i told him what a shame it was to tell me the dogs was quiet so they are quiet says he sure there is nine of them and only seven of them bites thank you says i there was something irresistibly comic in the quiet manner that hooligan said thank you says i and the account of his canine adventure altogether excited much mirth amongst his auditors as they pursued their journey many a joke was passed and repartee returned and the laugh rang loudly and often from the merry little group as they trudged along in the course of the next mile's march their numbers were increased by some half-dozen that one by one suddenly appeared by leaping over the hedge on the road or crossing a stile from some neighboring path all these newcomers pursued the same route and each gave the same answer when asked where he was going it was universally this why then where could i be going but to the bearing at a neighboring confluence of roads straggling parties of from four to five were seen in advance and approaching in the rear and the highway soon began to wear the appearance it is wont to do on the occasion of a patron a fair or a market day larry lanigan was in evident enjoyment at this increase of numbers and as the crowd thickened his exultation increased and he often repeated his ejaculation already noticed in larry's opening soliloquy why then and isn't it a great day entirely for ireland and now horsemen were more frequently appearing and their number soon amounted to almost a cavalcade and sometimes a car that is to say the car common to the country for agricultural purposes might be seen bearing a cargo of women videlicet the wood woman herself and her rosy-cheeked daughters and maybe a cousin or two with an aide-de-camp on to assist in looking after the young ladies the roughness of the motion of this primitive vehicle was rendered as accommodating as possible to the gentler sex by a plentiful shake-down of clean straw on the car over which a feather bed was laid and the best quilt in the house over that to make all smart possibly a piece of hexagon patchwork of the mistress herself in which the trattiest calico pattern served to display the taste of the rural seamstress and stimulated the rising generation to feats of needlework 
the car was always provided with a driver who took such care upon himself for a reason he had he was almost universally what is called in ireland a clean boy that is to say a well-made good-looking young fellow whose eyes were not put into his head for nothing and these same eyes might be seen wandering backwards occasionally from his immediate charge the dumb based to take a squint at some or maybe one of his passengers this explains the reason he had for becoming a driver sometimes he sat on the crupper of the horse resting his feet on the shafts of the car and bending down his head to say something tender to the colleen that sat next to him totally negligent of his duty as guide sometimes when the girl he wanted to be sweet on was seated at the back of the car this relieved the horse from the additional burden of his driver and the clean boy could lift the horse's head and fall in the rear to delude the creature depending on the occasional hop or woof for the guidance of the beast when a too near proximity to the dike by the roadside warned him of the necessity of his interference sometimes he was called to his duty by the open remonstrance of either the mother or the aunt or maybe a mischievous cousin as does why then dinny what are you about at all at all god between me and harm if you weren't within an inch of putting us all in the gripe of the ditch array leave off your gossiping there and mind the horse will you a purty thing if you'd be if my bones was broke what are you doing there at all at the back of the car when it's at the base head you ought to be arrah sure the base knows the way herself fax i believe so for it's little beholden to you she's for the showing her ah murder there we are in the gripe at most lave over your screeching can't you and be quiet sure the poor creature only just went over to get a mouthful of the grass by the side of the ditch what business has she to be eating now because she's hungry i suppose and why isn't she fed better because rocks tails her oats dinny i seen you in the stable by the same talking yesterday sure enough ma'am for i went there to look for my colt that was missing i thought it was the filly you wore after dinny said a cousin with a wink and dinny grinned and his sweetheart blushed while the rest of the girls tittered the mother pretended not to hear the joke and bidding dinny to go mind his business by attending the horse but lest i should tire my reader by keeping him so long on the road i will let him find the rest of his way as well as he can to a certain romantic little valley where a comfortable farmhouse was situated besides a small mountain stream that tumbled along noisily over its rocky bed and in which some dogs noisier than the stream were enjoying their morning bath the geese were indulging in dignified rest and silence upon the bank a cock was crowing and strutting with his usual swagger amongst his hens a pig was endeavouring to save his ears not from his rural tumult but from the teeth of a half-terrier dog 
who was chasing him away from an iron pot full of potatoes which the pig had dared to attempt some impertinent liberties with and a girl was bearing into the house a pail of milk which she had just taken from the cow that stood placidly looking on an admirable contrast to the general bustle of the scene everything about the cottage gave evidence of comfort on the part of its owner and to judge from the numbers without and within the house you would say he did not want for friends for all as they arrived at his door greeted philemon o'hara kindly and philemon welcomed each newcomer with a heartiness that did honour to his grey hairs frequently passing to and fro busily engaged in arranging an ample breakfast in the barn appeared his daughter a pretty round-faced girl with black hair and the long and silky lashed dark grey eyes of her country where merriment loves to dwell and a rosy mouth whose smile served at once to display her good temper and her fine teeth her colour gets fresher for a moment and a look of affectionate recognition brightens her eye as a lithe young fellow springs briskly over the stepping stones that lead across the stream and trips lightly up to the girl who offers her hand in welcome who is the happy dog that is so well received by honor o'hara the prettiest girl in that parish or the next and the daughter of a snug man into the bargain it is the reader's old acquaintance larry lanigan and maybe larry did not give a squeeze extraordinary to the hand that was presented to him the father received him well also indeed for that matter the difficulty would have been to find a house in the whole district that larry would not have been welcome in so here you are at last larry said old o'hara i was wondering you were not here long ago and so i could i thank you kindly said larry only i overtook old hoppy here on the road and sure i thought i might as well take my time and wait for poor hoppy and bring my welcome along with me and here he shoved the fiddler into the house before him the girls will be glad to see the pair of jeers said the old man following the interior of the house was crowded with guests and the usual laughing and courting so often described as common to such assemblages were going forward amongst the young people at the farther end of the largest room in the cottage a knot of the older men of the party was engaged in the discussion of some subject that seemed to carry deep interest along with it and at the opposite extremity of the same room a coffin of very rude construction lay on a small table and around this coffin stood all the junior part of the company male and female and the wildness of their mirth and the fertility of their jest over this tenement of mortality and its contents might have well startled a stranger for a moment until he saw the nature of the deposit the coffin contained enshrouded in a sheaf of wheat lay a pig 
between whose open jaws a large potato was placed and the coffin was otherwise grotesquely decorated the reader will wonder no doubt at such an exhibition for certainly never was coffin so applied before and it is therefore necessary to explain the meaning of all this and i believe ireland is the only country in the world where the facts i am about to relate could have occurred it may be remembered that some time previously to the date at which my story commences his majesty's minister declared that there should be a total extinction of tithes this declaration was received in ireland by the great mass of the people with the utmost delight as they fancied they should never have tithes to pay again the peasantry in the neighbourhood of templenmore formed the very original idea of burying the tithe it is only amongst an imaginative people that such a notion could have originated and indeed there is something highly poetical in the conception the tithe that which the poor felt the keenest that which they considered a tax on their industry that which they looked upon as an hereditary oppression that hateful thing they were told was to be extinct and in joyous anticipation of the blessing they determined to enact an emblematic interment of this terrible enemy i think it is not too much to call this idea a fine one and yet in the execution of it they invested it with the broadest marking of the grotesque such is the strange compound of an irish peasant whose anger is often vented in a jest and whose mirth is sometimes terrible i must here pause for a moment and request it to be distinctly understood that in relating this story in giving the facts connected with it and in stating what the irish peasants feelings are respecting tide i have not the most distant notion of putting forward any opinions of my own on the subject in the pursuit of my own quiet art i am happily far removed from the fierce encounter of politics and i do not wish to offend against the feelings or opinions of any one in my little volume and i trust therefore that i may be permitted to give a sketch of a characteristic incident as it came to my knowledge without being mistaken for a partisan i tell the tale as it was told to me i have said a group of seniors was collected at one end of the room and as it is meet to give precedence to age i will endeavour to give some idea of what was going forward amongst them there was one old man of the party whose furrowed forehead compressed eyebrows peaked nose and mouth depressed at the corners at once indicated to a physiognomist a querulous temper he was one of your doubters upon all occasions one of the unfailing elements of an argument as he said himself he was doversome about everything and he had hence earned the name of daddy doversome amongst his neighbours well daddy began to doubt the probability that any such boon as extinction of the tithes was to take place and said he was certain sure that's too good news to be true 
they're anointing said another who was the very antithesis of daddy in his credulous nature sure didn't i see it myself in print i was told often that things was in print returned daddy dryly that come out lies after to my own knowledge but sure added a third sure didn't the prime ear himself lay it all out before the parliament what prime ear are you talking about man dear said daddy rather testily why the prime ear of his majesty and no less is that satisfaction for you eh well and who is the prime ear why the prime ear of his majesty i told you before you see he is the one that hears of everything that is to be done for the whole empire in particular and because he hears of everything that is the reason he's called the prime ear and a good reason it is well but what has that to do with the tides i ask you again said daddy with his usual pertinacity here he was about to be answered by the former speaker whose definition of the premier had won him golden opinions amongst the bystanders when he was prevented by a fourth orator who rushed into the debate with this very elegant opening Arrai, their announces are setting me mad so jis are why i wonder any one i'd be such a fool as to argify with that crooked old disciple there meaning me said daddy i'd be sorry to contradict you sir said the other with an admirable mockery of politeness thank you sir said daddy with a dignity more comical than the other's buffonery you're kindly welcome daddy returned the aggressor sure you never believed anything yet and i wonder any one would throw away their time striving to rectify you come boys said o'hara interrupting the discourse with a view to prevent further bickering there is no use talking about the thing now for whatever way it is sure we are met to bury the tide and it's proud i am to see you all here to make merry upon the strength of it and i think i hear honour said this minute that everything is ready in the barn without so you'll have no difference of opinion about tackling to the breakfast or i am mistaken come my heart is the mate and the practice is crying who laid me away with you that's your sword and he enforced his summons to the feast by pushing his guests before him towards the scene of action end of section nine part one read by gabby cowan april two thousand fourteen international short stories volume two english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibreVox.org. recording by gabby cowan international short stories volume two english stories edited by william Patton section ten 
the burial of the tide by samuel lover part two this was an ample barn where tables of all sorts and sizes were spread loaded with viands of the most substantial character wooden forms three-legged stools broken-backed chairs etc etc were in requisition for the accommodation of the female portion of the company and the men attended first to their wants with a politeness which though deficient in the external graces of polished life did credit to their natures the eating part of the business was accompanied with all the clatter that might be expected to attend such an affair and when the eatables had been tolerably well demolished o'hara stood up in the midst of his guests and said he should propose to them a toast which he knew all the boys would fill their glasses for and that was to drink the health of the king and long life to him foreseeing into the rights of the thing and doing such a power for them and more power to his elbow this toast was prefaced by a speech to his friends and neighbours upon the hardships of the tide in particular spice with the last taste in life of politics in general wherein the repeat of the union and daniel o'connell cut no inconsiderable figure yet in the midst of the rambling address certain glimpses of good sense and shrewd observation might be caught and the many and powerful objections he advanced against the impost that was to be extinct so soon were put forward with a force and distinctness that were worthy a better speaker and might have been found difficult to reply to by a more accustomed hand he protested that he thought he had lived long enough when he had witnessed in his own lifetime two such national benefits as the catholic emancipation bill and the abolition of tithes o'hara further declared he was the happiest man alive that day only in the regard of one thing and that was that his reverence father heli the priest was not there amongst them and certainly the absence of the pastor on an occasion of festivity in the house of a snug farmer is of rare occurrence in ireland but you see said o'hara when his reverence heard that it was we were going to do he thought it would be prettier on his part for to have nothing whatsoever to do with it in hand act or part and indeed boys that shows a great deal of good breeding in father healy this was quite agreed to by the company and after many cheers for o'hara's speech and some other toasts pertinent to the occasion the health of o'hara as founder of the feast with the usual addenda of long life prosperity etc to him and his was drunk and then preparations were entered into for the proceedings with the ceremony of the funeral i believe we have nothing to wait for now said o'hara since you won't have any more to drink boys so let us set about it at once and make a clean day's work of it oh we're not quite ready yet said larry lanigan who seemed to be a sort of master of the ceremonies on the occasion what's the delay asked o'hara why the chief murners is not arrived yet 
what murders are you talking about man said the other why you know at the grand bearing they have always thief murders and there's a pair that i ordered to be brought here for that same myself doesn't know anything about murders said o'hara for i never seen anything finer than the kinners at the bearing but larry's up to the ways of the quality as well as of his own sort but you wouldn't have kinners for the tithe would you sure the kinners is to say all good they can of the departed and more if they can invent it but sure the devil a good thing at all they could say of the tithe very neat was lies the war telling and so it would only the throwing away trouble true for you lanigan besides it's likely a grand bearing belonging to the quality to have chief murders and you know the tide was a quail to a lord or a king a most for power in a short time the murders as larry called them arrived in custody of half a dozen of larry's chosen companions to whom he had entrusted the execution of the mission these chief murners were two tight proctors who had been taken forcibly from their homes by the lanigan party and threatened with death unless they attended the summons of larry to be present at the bearing their presence was hailed with a great shout and the poor devils looked excessively frightened but they were assured by o'hara they had nothing to fear i depend on you mr o'hara for seeing us safe out of their hands said one of them for the other was dumb from terror so you may was the answer o'hara returned hurt nor harm shall be put on you i give you my word on that devil a harm said larry we only put you into a shoot of clothes that is ready for you and you may look as melancholic as you please for it's murder you are to be well honour said he addressing o'hara's daughter have you got the mitre and vestments ready as i told you yes said honour here comes pity mulligan with them from the house for pity herself helped me to make them and who had a better right said larry when it was herself that laid it all out complete the whole thing from the beginning and sure enough but it was a bright thought of her fakes he'll be the lucky man that gets pity yet you had better have her yourself i think said honour with an arch look at larry full of meaning and it's that same i've been thinking of for some time said larry laughing and returning honour's look with one that repaid it with interest but where is she at all oh here she comes with the dust and mike noonan after her trod trod he's following her about all this morning like a sucking calf i'm afraid mike is going to circumvent me with pity but he'd better mind what he's at here the conversation was interrupted by the advance of pity mulligan and mike noonan after her bearing some grotesque imitation of clerical vestments made of coarse sacking and two enormous head-dresses made of straw in the fashion of mitres these were decorated with black rags hung fantastically about them while the vestments were smeared over with black stripes in no very regular order come here 
said larry to the tithe proctors come here until we put you into your regiments what are you going to do to us mr lanigan said the frightened poor wretch while his knees knocked together with terror we are just going to make a pair of bishops of you said lanigan and sure that's promotion for you oh mr o'hara said the proctor sure you won't let them tie us up in them sacks do you hear what he calls the elegant vestments we made on purpose for him they are sackcloth to be sure and why not seeing as how that you are to be the chief mourners and sackcloth and ashes is what you must be dressed in according to reason here my bog said the rollicking larry i'll be your valley the sham myself and he proceeded to put the dress on the terrified tight proctor oh mr lanigan dear said he don't murder me if you please murder you hurray who's going to murder you do you think i dirty my hands with killing a snaking tight proctor indeed that's true mr lanigan it could not be worth your while here now said larry hold your head till i put the mitre on you and make you a bishop complete but wait a bit trot i was nine for getting the ashes and that would have been a great loss to both of you because you wouldn't be right mourners at all without them and the people would think you weren't only pretending this last bit of larry's waggery produced great merriment amongst the bystanders for the unfortunate tithe proctors were looking at that moment most doleful examples of wretchedness a large shovelful of turfed ashes was now shaken over their heads and then they were decorated with their mitres tootman said larry to one of them don't trimbly like a dog in a wet sack oh thin look at him how pale he's turned the dirty coward that he is i'll tell you we're not going to do any hurt so you needn't be looking in such martial dread by gore you're as white as a penthord of curds in a swift's fist with many such jokes at the expense of the tight proctors they were attired in their caricature robes and mitres and presented with a pair of pitchforks by the way of crossiers and were recommended at the same time to make hail while the sun shone because the fine weather would be laving them soon with many other bitter sarcasms conveyed in the language of ridicule the procession was now soon arranged and as they had their chief mourners it was thought a good point of contrast to have their chief rejoices as well to this end in a large cart they put a sow and her litter of pigs decorated with ribbons a sheaf of wheat standing proudly erect a bowl of large potatoes which at honor sohara's suggestion were boiled that they might be laughing on the occasion and over this was hung a rude banner on which was written we may stay at home now in this card hoppy hooligan the fiddler with a piper as a coadjutor rasped and squeaked their best to the tune of go to the devil and shake yourself which was meant to convey a delicate hint to the tides for the future 
the whole assemblage of people and it was immense then proceeded to the spot where it was decided the tide was to be interred as the most fitting place to receive such a deposit and this place was called by what they considered the very appropriate name of the devil's pit in a range of hills in the neighborhood where this singular occurrence took place there is a sudden gap occurs in the outline of the ridge which is stated to have been formed by his sable majesty taking a bite out of the mountain whether it was a spite of hunger that had made him do so is not ascertained but he evidently did not consider it very savoury morsel for it is said he spat it out again and the rejected morsel forms the rock of cashel such is the wild legend of this wild spot and here was the interment of the tide to be achieved as an appropriate addition to the devil's pit the procession now moved onward and as it proceeded its numbers were considerably augmented its approach was looked for by a scout on every successive hill it came within sight of and a wild halloo or the winding of a cow's horn immediately succeeded which called forth scores of fresh attendants upon the bearing thus their numbers were increased every quarter of a mile they went until on their arriving at the foot of the hill which they were to ascend to reach their final destination the multitude assembled presented a most imposing appearance in the course of their march the great point of attraction for the young men and the women was the cart that bore the piper and fiddler and the road was rather danced than walked over in this quarter the other distinguished portion of the train was where the two tight proctors played their parts of chief mourners they were the delight of all the little ragged urchins in the country the half-naked young vagabonds hung on their flanks plunk at their vestments made wry faces at them called them by many ridiculous names and an occasional lump of clay was slyly flung at their mitres which were too tempting a cock-shot to be resisted the multitude now round up the hill and the mingling of laughter of singing and shouting produced a wild compound of sound that rang far and wide as they doubled an angle in the road which opened the devil's pit full upon their view they saw another crowd assembled there which consisted of persons from the other side of the hills who could not be present at the breakfast nor join the procession but who attended upon the spot where the interment was to take place as soon as the approach of the funeral train was perceived from the top of the hill the mass of people there sent forth a shout of welcome which was returned by those from below short space now served to bring both parties together and the digging of a grave did not take long with such a plenty of able hands for the purpose come boys said larry lanigan to two or three of his companions while they are digging the grave here we'll go cut some sods to put over it when the thieving tide is buried not for any respect i have for it in particular but 
that we may have the place smooth and clean to dance over afterwards and may i never shuffle the brogue again if myself and honor o'hara won't be the first pair that'll set you a pattern all was soon ready for the interment the tight coffin was lowered into the pit and the shouted that rent the air was terrific as they were about to fill up the grave with earth their wild hurrah that had rung out so loudly was answered by a fierce shout at some distance and all eyes were turned towards the quarter whence it arose to see from whom it proceeded for it was evidently a solitary voice that had thus arrested their attention toiling up the hill supporting himself with a staff and bearing a heavy load in a wallet slung over his shoulders appeared an elderly man whose dress proclaimed him at once to be a person who depended on eleemosynary contributions for his subsistence and many when they caught the first glimpse of him proclaimed at once that it was tatter the road was coming tatter the roadway the very descriptive name that had been applied to this poor creature for he was always travelling about the highways he never rested even at night in any of the houses of the peasants who would have afforded him shelter but seemed to be possessed by a restless spirit that urged him to constant motion of course the poor creature sometimes slept but it must have been under such shelter as a hedge or cave or gravel pit might afford for in the habitation of man he was never seen to sleep and indeed i never knew any one who bad seen this strange thing in the act of sleep this fact attached a sort of mysterious character to the wanderer and many would tell you that he wasn't right and firmly believe that he never slept at all his mind was unsettled and though he never became offensive in any degree from his mental aberration yet the nature of his distemper often induced him to do very extraordinary things and whenever the gift of speech was upon him for he was habitually taciturn he would make an outpouring of some rhapsody in which occasional bursts of very powerful language and striking imagery could occur indeed the peasants said that sometimes could make their hand stand on end to hear tatter the road make an oration this poor man's history as far as i could learn was a very melancholy one in the rebellion of ninety eight his cabin had been burned over his head by the germani after every violation that could disgrace his heart had been committed he and his son then little more than a boy had attempted to defend their hut, and they were both left for dead his wife and his daughter a girl of sixteen were also murdered the wretched father unfortunately recovered his life but his reason was gone for ever even in the midst of his poverty and madness there was a sort of respect attached to this singular man though depending on charity for his meat and drink he could not well be called a beggar for he never asked for anything even on the road 
when some passenger ignorant of his wild history saw the poor wanderer a piece of money was often bestowed to the silent appeal of his rags his haggard features and his grisly hair and beard thus eternally up and down the country was he moving about and hence his name of tatter the roll it was not long until the old man gained the summit of the hill but while he was approaching many were the wonders that in the name of fortune could have brought tattered the road there and by that said one he's pulling foot of a great rate and it's wonderful how an old cop like him can clamber up the hill so fast Aye, said another and with the weight he's carrying too sure enough said a third fix he's got a fine love in his wallet to-day whisht said o'hara here he comes and his ears are as sharp as needles and his eyes too said a woman lord be good to me did you ever see poor tatter's eyes look so terrible bright afore and indeed this remark was not uncalled for for the eyes of the old man almost gleamed from under the shaggy brows that were darkly bent over them as with long strides he approached the crowd which opened before him and he stalked up to the side of the grave and threw down the ponderous wallet which fell to the ground with a heavy crash you were going to close the grave too soon were the first words he uttered sure when the tide it wasn't buried what more have we to do said one of the bystanders Hush, you have put the tide in the grave but will it stay there why indeed said larry lanigan i think he be a bold resurrection man that would come to rise it i have brought you something here to lie heavy on it and it will never rise more said the maniac striking forth his arm fiercely and clenching his hand firmly and what have you brought us akra said o'hara kindly to him look here said the other unfolding his wallet and displaying five or six large stones some were tempted to laugh but a mysterious dread of the wild being before them prevented any outbreak of mirth god help ye creature said a woman so loud as to be heard he has brought a bag full of stones to draw up at the tides to keep them down oh wish wish a poor creature ah stones said the maniac but do you know what the stones these are look woman and his manner became intensely impressive from the excitement even of madness under which was acting look i say there is not a stone there that's not a curse ay a curse so heavy that nothing can ever rise that falls under it oh i don't want to say against it dear said the woman the maniac did not seem to notice her submissive answer but pursuing his train of madness continued his address in his native tongue whose figurative and poetical construction was heightened in its effect by a manner and action almost theatrically descriptive you all remember the window damsy the first choice of her bosom was long gone but the sound she loved was left to her and her heart was not quite lonely 
and at the widow's heart there was still a welcome for the stranger and the son of her heart made his choice like the father before him and the joy of the widow's house was increased for the son of her heart was happy and in due time the widow welcomed the fair-haired child of her son to the world and a dream of her youth came over her as she saw the joy of her son and her daughter when they kissed the fair-haired child but the hand of god was heavy in the land and the fever fell hard upon the poor and the widow was again bereft for the son of her heart was taken and the wife of his bosom also and the fair-haired child was left an orphan and the widow would have laid down her bones and died but for the fair-haired child that had none to look to but her and the widow blessed god's name and bent her head to the blow and the orphan that was left to her was the pulse of her heart and often she looked on his pale face with a fearful eye for health was not on the cheek of the boy but she cherished him tenderly but the ways of the world grew crooked to the lone woman when the son was the staff of her age was gone and one trouble followed another but still the widow was not quite destitute and what has it brought the heavy stroke of distress and disgrace to the widow's door the tide the widow's cow was driven and sold to pay a few shillings the drop of milk was no longer in the widow's house and the tender child that needed the nourishment wasted away before the widow's eye like snow from the ditch and died and fast the widow followed the son of her heart and his fair-haired boy and now the home of an honest race is a heap of rubbish and the bleak wind whistles over the heart where the warm welcome was ever found and the cold frog crouches under the ruins these stones are from that desolate place and the curse of god that follows oppression is on them and let them be cast into the grave and they will lie with the weight of a mountain on the monster that is buried for ever so saying he lifted stone after stone and flung them fiercely into the pit's den after a moment's pause upon its perch he suddenly strode away with the same noiseless step that he had approached and left the scene in silence end of section ten read by gabby cowan april twenty fourteen wherefore means dot blogspot dot ca international short stories volume two english stories this is the librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by edward kirkby international short stories volume two english stories edited by william patton section eleven the knightsbridge mystery by charles reed part one in charles the second's day the swan was denounced by the dramatists as a house where unfaithful wives and mistresses met their gallants but in the next century when john clark was the freeholder no special imputation of that sort rested on it 
it was a country inn with large stables horsed the brentford coach and entertained man and beast on journeys long or short it had also permanent visitors especially in summer for it was near london and yet a rural retreat meadows on each side hyde park at back knightsbridge green in front amongst the permanent lodgers was mr gardiner a substantial man and captain cowan a retired officer of moderate means had lately taken two rooms for himself and his son mr gardiner often joined the company in the public room but the cowans kept to themselves upstairs this was soon noticed and resented in that age of few books and free converse some said oh we are not good enough for him others inquired what a half-pay captain had to give himself airs about candor interposed and supplied the climax nay my masters the captain may be in hiding from duns or from the runners now i think on it the york mail was robbed scarce a night before his worship came a-hiding here but the landlady's tongue ran the other way her weight was sixteen stone her sentiments were her interests and her tongue her tomahawk tis pity said she one day some folk can't keep their tongues from blackening of their betters the captain is a civil-spoken gentleman lord send there were more of them in these parts as takes his hat off to me whenever he meets me and pays his reckoning weekly if he has a mind to be private what business is that of yours or ours but curs must bark at their betters detraction thus roughly quelled for certain seconds revived at intervals whenever dame gust's broad back was turned it was mildly encountered one evening by gardiner nay good sirs said he you mistake the worthy captain to have fought at blenheim and malpaquet no man has less vanity tis for his son he holds aloof he guards the youth like a mother and will not have him to hear our taproom jests he worships the boy a sullen lout sirs but parental love is blind he told me once he had loved his wife dearly and lost her young and this was all he had of her and said he i'd spill blood like water for him my own the first then sir says i i fear he will give you a sore heart one day and welcome says my captain and his face like iron somebody remarked that no man keeps out of company who is good company but mr gardiner parried that dogma when young master is abed my neighbour does sometimes invite me to share a bottle and a sprightlier companion i would not desire such stories of battles and duels and love intrigues now there's an old fox for you said one approvingly it reconciled him to the captain's decency to find that it was only hypocrisy i like not a man who wears a mask he coughed a hitherto silent personage revealing his clandestine drunkenness and unsuspected wisdom at one blow these various theories were still fermenting in the bosom of the swan when one day there rode up to the door a gorgeous officer hot from the minister's leave in scarlet and gold with an order like a starfish glittering on his breast his servant a private soldier rode behind him and slipping hastily from his saddle held his master's horse while he dismounted just then captain cowan came out for his afternoon walk he started and cried out colonel barrington ah brother cried the other and instantly the two officers embraced and even kissed each other for that feminine custom had not yet retired across the channel and these were soldiers who had fought and bled side by side 
and nursed each other in turn and your true soldier does not nurse by halves his vigilance and tenderness are an example to women and he rustleth not captain cowan invited colonel barrington to his room and that warrior marched down the passage after him single file with long brass spurs and sabre clinking at his heels and the establishment ducked and smiled and respected captain cowan for the reason we admire the moon seated in cowan's room the newcomer said heartily well ned i come not empty-handed here is thy pension at last and handed him a parchment with a seal like a poached egg cowan changed colour and thanked him with an emotion he rarely betrayed and gloated over the precious document his cast-iron features relaxed and he said it comes in the nick of time for now i can send my dear jack to college this led somehow to an exposure of his affairs he had just a hundred and ten pounds a year derived from the sale of his commission which he had invested at fifteen per cent with a well-known mercantile house in the city so now said he i shall divide it all in three jack will want two parts to live at oxford and i can do well enough here on one the rest of the conversation does not matter so i dismiss it and colonel barrington for the time a few days afterward jack went to college and captain cowan reduced his expenses and dined at the shilling ordinary and indeed took all his moderate repasts in public instead of the severe and reserved character he had worn while his son was with him he now shone out a boon companion and sometimes kept the table in roar with his marvellous mimicries of all the characters male or female that lived in the inn or frequented it and sometimes held them breathless with adventures dangers intrigues in which a leading part had been played by himself or his friends he became quite a popular character except with one or two envious bodies whom he eclipsed they revenged themselves by saying it was all braggadocio his battles had been fought over a bottle and by the fireside the district east and west of knightsbridge had long been infested with footpads they robbed passengers in the country lanes which then abounded and sometimes on the king's highway from which those lanes offered an easy escape one moonlit night captain cowan was returning home alone from an entertainment at fulham when suddenly the air seemed to fill with a woman's screams and cries they issued from a lane on his right hand he whipped out his sword and dashed down the lane it took a sudden turn and in a moment he came upon three footpads robbing and maltreating an old gentleman and his wife the old man's sword lay at a distance struck from his feeble hand the woman's tongue proved the better weapon for at least it brought an ally the nearest robber seeing the captain come at him with his drawn sword glittering in the moonshine fired hastily and grazed his cheek and was skewered like a frog the next moment his cry of agony mingled with two shouts of dismay and the other footpads fled but even as they turned captain cowan's nimble blade entered the shoulder of one and pierced the fleshy part he escaped however but howling and bleeding captain cowan handed over the lady and the gentleman to the people who flocked to the place now the work was done and the disabled robber to the guardians of the public peace who arrived last of all he himself withdrew apart and wiped his sword very carefully and minutely with a white pocket handkerchief and then retired he was so far from parading his exploit that he went round by the park and let himself into the swan with his private key and was going quietly to bed when the chambermaid met him and up flew her arms with cries of dismay 
oh captain oh captain look at you smothered in blood i shall faint tush silly wench said captain cowan i am not hurt not hurt sir i'm bleeding like a pig your cheek your poor cheek captain cowan put up his hand and found that blood was really welling from his cheek and ear he looked grave for a moment then assured her it was but a scratch and offered to convince her of that bring me some lukewarm water and thou shalt be my doctor but barbara prithee publish it not next morning an officer of justice inquired after him at the swan and demanded his attendance at bow street at two that afternoon to give evidence against the footpads this was the very thing he wished to avoid but there was no evading the summons the officer was invited into the bar by the landlady and sang the gallant captain's exploit with his own variations the inn began to ring with cowan's praises indeed there was now but one detractor left the hostler daniel cox a drunken fellow of sinister aspect who had for some time stared and lowered at captain cowan and muttered mysterious things doubts as to his being a real captain etc which incoherent murmurs of a muddled-headed drunkard were not treated as oracular by any human creature though the stable-boy once went so far as to say i sometimes almost thinks as how our dan do know summat only he don't rightly know what tis along o' being always muddled in liquor cowan who seemed to notice little but noticed everything had observed the lowering looks of this fellow and felt he had an enemy it even made him a little uneasy though he was too proud and self-possessed to show it with this exception then everybody greeted him with hearty compliments and he was cheered out of the inn marching to bow street daniel cox who as accidents will happen was sober that morning saw him out and then put on his own coat take thou charge of the stable sam said he why where's best going at this time of day i be going to bow street said daniel doggedly at bow street captain cowan was received with great respect and a seat given him by the sitting magistrate while some minor cases were disposed of in due course the highway robbery was called and proved by the parties who unluckily for the accused had been actually robbed before cowan interfered then the oath was tendered to cowan he stood up by the magistrate's side and deposed with military brevity and exactness to the facts i have related but refused to swear to the identity of the individual culprit who stood pale and trembling at the dock the attorney for the crown after pressing in vain said quite right captain cowan a witness cannot be too scrupulous he then called an officer who had found the robber leaning against a railing fainting from loss of blood scarce a furlong from the scene of the robbery and wounded in the shoulder that let in captain cowan's evidence and the culprit was committed for trial and soon after peached upon his only comrade at large the other lay in hospital at newgate the magistrate complimented captain cowan on his conduct and his evidence and he went away universally admired yet he was not elated nor indeed content sitting by the magistrate's side after he had given his evidence he happened to look all round the court and in a distant corner he saw the enormous mottled nose and sinister eyes of daniel cox glaring at him with a strange but puzzled expression cowan had learned to read faces and he said to himself what is there in that ruffian's mind about me did he know me years ago i cannot remember him curse the beast one would almost think he is cudgelling his drunken memory 
I'll keep an eye on you. He went home thoughtful and discomposed, because this drunkard glowered at him so. The reception he met with at the Swan effaced the impression. He was received with acclamations, and now that publicity was forced on him, he accepted it, and revelled in popularity. About this time he received a letter from his son, enclosing a notice from the college tutor, speaking highly of his ability, good conduct, devotion to study. This made the father swell with loving pride. Jack hinted modestly that there were unavoidable expenses, and his funds were dwindling. He enclosed an account that showed how the money went. The father wrote back and bade him be easy. He should have every farthing required and speedily. For, said he, my half-year's interest is due now. Two days after, he had a letter from his man of business, begging him to call. He went with alacrity, making sure his money was waiting for him as usual. His lawyer received him very gravely, and begged him to be seated. He then broke to him some appalling news. The great house of Brown, Molyneux and Co. had suspended payments at noon the day before, and were not expecting to pay a shilling in the pound. Captain Cowan's little fortune was gone, all but his pension of eight pounds a year. He sat like a man turned to stone. Then he clasped his hands with agony, and uttered two words, No more, my son. He rose and left the place like one in a dream. He got down to Knightsbridge, he hardly knew how. At the very door of the inn he fell down in a fit. The people of the inn were round him in a moment, and restoratives freely supplied. His sturdy nature soon revived, but, with a moral and physical shock, his lips were slightly distorted over his clenched teeth. His face, too, was ashy pale. When he came to himself, the first face he noticed was that of Daniel Cox, eyeing him, not with pity, but with puzzled curiosity. Cowan shuddered and closed his own eyes to avoid this blighting glare. Then, without opening them, he muttered, What has befallen me? I feel no wound. Laws forbid, sir, said the landlady, leaning over him. Your honour did not swoon for once, to show you was born of a woman, and not made of naught but steel. Here, you gaping loons and sluts, help the captain to his room, amongst ye and then go about your business. This order was promptly executed, so far as assisting Captain Cowan to rise. But he was no sooner on his feet than he waved them all from him hoitily and said, Let me be. It is the mind. It is the mind. And he smote his forehead in despair, for now it all came back on him. Then he rushed into the inn, and locked himself into his room. Female curiosity buzzed about the doors, but was not admitted until he had recovered his fortitude and formed a bitter resolution to defend himself and his son against all mankind. At last there came a timid tap, and a mellow voice said, "'Tis only me, Captain. Prithee let me in.' He opened to her, and there was Barbara, with a large tray and a snow-white cloth. She spread a table deftly, and uncovered a roast capon, and uncorked a bottle of white port, talking all the time. "'The mistress says you must eat a bit,' and drink this good wine for her sake. Indeed, sir, twill do you good after your swoon. With many such encouraging words she got him to sit down and eat, and then filled his glass and put it to his lips. He could not eat much, but he drank the white port, a wine much prized and purer than the purple vintage of our day. At last came Barbara's post-diet. But alack, to think of your fainting dead away, O oh, Captain, what is the trouble? 
the tear was in barbara's eye though she was the emissary of dame cust's curiosity and all curiosity herself captain cowan who had been expecting this question for some time replied doggedly i have lost the best friend i had in the world dear heart said barbara and a big tear of sympathy that had been gathering ever since she entered the room rolled down her cheeks she put up a corner of her apron to her eyes alas poor soul she said ah i do know how hard it is to love and lose but bethink you sir tis the lot of man our own turn must come and you have your son left to thank god for and a warm friend or two in this place though they be but humble ah good wench said the soldier his iron nature touched for a moment by her goodness and simplicity and none i value more than thee but leave me a while the young woman's honest cheeks reddened at the praise of such a man your will's my pleasure sir she said and retired leaving the capon and the wine any little compunction he might have at refusing his confidence to this humble friend did not trouble him long he looked on women as leaky vessels and he had firmly resolved not to make his situation worse by telling the base world that he was poor many a hard rub had put a fine point on this man of steel he closed the matter too in his own mind i told her no lie i have lost my best friend for i've lost my money from that day captain cowan visited the tap-room no more and indeed seldom went out by daylight he was all alone now for mr gardiner was gone to wiltshire to collect his rents in his solitary chamber cowan ruminated his loss and the villainy of mankind and his busy brain revolved scheme after scheme to repair the impending ruin of his son's prospects it was there the iron entered his soul the example of the very footpads he had baffled occurred to him in his more desperate moments but he fought the temptation down and in due course one of them was transported and one hung the other languished in newgate by and by he began to be mysteriously busy and the door always locked no clue was ever found to his labors but bits of melted wax in the fender and a tuft or two of gray hair and it was never discovered in knightsbridge that he often begged in the city at dusk in a disguise so perfect that a frequenter of the swan once gave him a groat thus did he levy his tax upon the stony place that had undone him instead of taking his afternoon walk as heretofore he would sit disconsolate on the seat of a staircase window that looked into the yard and so took the air and sun and it was owing to this new habit he overheard one day a dialogue in which the foggy voice of the hostler predominated at first he was running down captain cohen to a potboy the potboy stood up for him that annoyed cox he spoke louder and louder the more he was opposed till at last he bawled out i tell ye i've seen him sitting by the judge and i've seen him in the dock at these words captain cowen recoiled though he was already out of sight and his eye glittered like a basilisk's but immediately a new voice broke upon the scene a woman's thou foul-mouthed knave is it for thee to slander men of worship and give the inn a bad name remember i have but to lift my finger to hang thee so drive me not to it begone to thy horses this moment thou art not fit to be among christians begone i say or it shall be the worse for thee and she drove him across the yard and followed him up with a current of invectives 
eloquent even at a distance though the words were no longer distinct and who should this be but the housemaid barbara lamb so gentle mellow and melodious before the gentlefolk and especially her hero captain cowan as for daniel cox he cowered writhed and wriggled away before her and slipped into the stable captain cowan was now soured by trouble and this persistent enmity of that fellow roused at last a fixed and deadly hatred in his mind all the more intense that fear mingled with it he sounded barbara asked her what nonsense that ruffian had been talking and what he had done that she could hang him for but barbara would not say a malicious word against a fellow-servant in cold blood i can keep a secret said she if he keeps his tongue off you i'll keep mine so be it said cowan then i warn you i am sick of his insolence and drunkards must be taught not to make enemies of sober men nor fools of wise men he said this so bitterly that to soothe him she begged him not to trouble about the ravings of a sot dear heart said she nobody heeds dan cox some days afterward she told him that dan had been drinking harder than ever and wouldn't trouble honest folk long for he had the delusions that go before a drunkard's end why he had told the stable boy he had seen a vision of himself climb over the garden wall and enter the house by the back door the poor wretch says he knew himself by his bottle nose and his cowskin waistcoat and to be sure there is no such nose in the parish thank heaven for it and not many such waistcoats she laughed heartily but cowan's lip curled in a venomous sneer he said more likely twas the knave himself look to your spoons if such a face as that walks by night barbara turned grave directly he eyed her askant and saw the random shot had gone home captain cowan now often slept in the city alleging business mr gardiner wrote from salisbury ordering his room to be ready and his sheets well aired one afternoon he returned with a bag and a small valise prodigiously heavy he had a fire lighted though it was fine autumn for he was chilled with his journey and invited captain cowan to sup with him the latter consented but begged it might be an early supper as he must sleep in the city i'm sorry for that said gardiner i have a hundred and eighty guineas there in that bag and a man could get into my room from yours not if you lock the middle door said cowan but i can leave you the key of my outer door for that matter this offer was accepted but still mr gardiner felt uneasy there had been several robberies at inns and it was a rainy gusty night he was depressed and ill at ease then captain cowan offered him his pistols and helped him load them two bullets in each he also went and fetched him a bottle of the best port and after drinking one glass with him hurried away and left his key with him for further security mr gardiner left to himself made up a great fire and took a glass or two of the wine it seemed remarkably heady and raised his spirits after all it was only for one night tomorrow he would deposit his gold in the bank he began to unpack his things and put his nightdress to the fire but by and by he felt so drowsy that he did but take his coat off put his pistols under the pillow and lay down on the bed and fell fast asleep that night barbara lamb awoke twice thinking each time she heard doors open and shut on the floor below her but it was a gusty night and she concluded it was most likely the wind still a residue of uneasiness made her rise at five instead of six and she lighted her tinder and came down with a rushlight 
she found captain cowan's door wide open it had been locked when she went to bed that alarmed her greatly she looked in a glance was enough she cried thieves thieves and in a moment uttered scream upon scream in an incredibly short time pale and eager faces of men and women filled the passage cowan's room being opened was entered first on the floor lay what barbara had seen at a glance his portmanteau rifled and the clothes scattered about the door of communication was ajar they opened it and an appalling sight met their eyes mr gardiner was lying in a pool of blood and moaning feebly there was little hope of saving him no human body could long survive such a loss of the vital fluid but it so happened there was a country surgeon in the house he stanched the wounds there were three and somebody or other had the sense to beg the victim to make a statement he was unable at first but under powerful stimulants revived at last and showed a strong wish to aid justice in avenging him by this time they had got a magistrate to attend and he put his ear to the dying man's lips but others heard so hushed was the room and so keen the awe and curiosity of each panting heart i had gold in my portmanteau and was afraid i drank a bottle of wine with captain cowan and he left me he lent me his key and his pistols i locked both doors i felt very sleepy and lay down when i woke a man was leaning over my portmanteau his back was toward me i took a pistol and aimed steadily it missed fire the man turned and sprang on me i had caught up a knife one we had for supper i stabbed him with all my force he wrested it from me and i felt piercing blows i am slain ah i am slain but the man sir did you not see his face at all not till he fell on me but then very plainly the moon shone pray describe him broken hat yes hairy waistcoat yes enormous nose do you know him ah the hostler cox there was a groan of horror and a cry for vengeance silence said the magistrate mr gardiner you are a dying man words may kill be careful have you any doubts about what that the villain was daniel cox none whatever at these words the men and women who were glaring with pale faces and all their senses strained at the dying man and his faint yet terrible denunciation broke into two bands some remained rooted to the place the rest hurried with the cries of vengeance in search of daniel cox they were met in the yard by two constables and rushed first to the stables not that they hoped to find him there of course he had absconded with his booty the stable door was ajar they tore it open the grey dawn revealed cox fast asleep on the straw in the first empty stall and his bottle in the manger his clothes were bloody and the man was drunk they pulled him cursed him struck him and would have torn him in pieces but the constables interfered set him up against the rail like timber and searched his bosom and found a wound then turned all his pockets inside out amidst great expectation and found three halfpence and the key of the stable door end of section 11 recording by edward kirkby warwick england
International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby. International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 12. The Knightsbridge Mystery by Charles Reed. Part 2. They ransacked the straw, and all the premises, and found nothing. Then, to make him sober, and get something out of him, they pumped upon his head till he was very nearly choked. However, it told on him. He gasped for breath a while, and rolled his eyes, and then coolly asked them, Had they found the villain? They shook their fists at him. Ah, we have found the villain, red-handed. I mean him as prowls about these parts in my whisket, and drove his knife into me last night. Wonder I didn't kill me out of hand. Have you found him amongst ye? This question met with a volley of jeers and execrations, and the constables pinioned him, and bundled him off in a cart to Bow Street, to wait examination. Meantime, two Bow Street runners came down with a warrant, and made a careful examination of the premises. The two keys were on the table. Mr. Gardiner's outer door was locked. There was no money either in his portmanteau of Captain Cowan's. Both pistols were found loaded, but no priming in the pan of the one that lay on the bed. The other was primed, but the bullets were above the powder. Bradbury, one of the runners, took particular notice of all. Outside, blood was traced from the stable to the garden wall, and under this wall, in the grass, a bloody knife was found belonging to the Swan Inn. There was one knife less in Mr. Gardiner's room than had been carried up to his supper. Mr. Gardiner lingered till noon, but never spoke again. The news spread swiftly, and Captain Cowan came home in the afternoon, very pale and shocked. He had heard of a robbery and murder at the Swan, and came to know more. The landlady told him all that had transpired, and that the villain Cox was in prison. Cowan listened thoughtfully and said, Cox, no doubt he is a knave, but murder? I should never have suspected him of that. The landlady pooh-poohed his doubts. Why, sir, the poor gentleman knew him, and wounded him in self-defence, and the rogue was found a-bleeding from that very wound, and my knife has done the murder, not a stone's throw from him has done it. Which it was that Dan Fox, and he'll swing for it, please God. Then, changing her tone, she said solemnly, You'll come and see him, sir? Yes, said Cowan, resolutely, with scarce a moment's hesitation. The landlady led the way, and took the keys out of her pocket, and opened Cowan's door. We keep all locked, said she, half apologetically. The magistrate bade us, and everything as we found it. God help us. There, look at your portmanteau. I wish you may not have been robbed as well. No matter, said he. But it matters to me, said she, for the credit of the house. Then she gave him the key of the inner door, and waved her hand toward it, and sat down, and began to cry. Cowan went in and saw the appalling sight. He returned quickly, looking like a ghost, and muttered, This is a terrible business. It is a bad business for me and all, said she. He have robbed you too. I'll go bail. Captain Cowan examined his trunk carefully. Nothing to speak of, said he. 
I've lost eight guineas and my gold watch. There, 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 cried the landlady. What does that matter, dame? He has lost his life. Ah, poor soul. But twon't bring him back, you being robbed and all. Was ever such an unfortunate woman? Murder and robbery in my house? Travellers will shun it like a pest-house. And the new landlord, he only wanted a good excuse to take it down altogether. This was followed by more sobbing and crying. Cowan took her downstairs into the bar and comforted her. They had a glass of spirits together, and he encouraged the flow of her egotism, till at last she fully persuaded herself it was her calamity that one man was robbed and another murdered in her house. Cowan, always a favourite, quite won her heart by falling into this view of the matter, and when he told her he must go back to the city again, for he had important business, and besides, had no money left, either in his pockets or his rifled valise. She encouraged him to go, and said kindly, indeed it was no place for him now. It was very good of him to come back at all, but both apartments should be scoured and made decent in a very few days, and a new carpet down in Mr. Gardiner's room. Sir Cowan went back to the city, and left his notable woman to mop up her murder. At Bow Street next morning, in answer to the evidence of his guilt, Cox told a tale which the magistrate said was even more ridiculous than most of the stories uneducated criminals get up on such occasions. With this single comment, he committed Cox for trial. Everybody was of the magistrate's opinion, except a single Bow Street runner, the same who had already examined the premises. This man suspected Cox, but had one qualm of doubt founded on the place where he had discovered the knife and the circumstances of the blood being traced from that place to the stable, and not from the inn to the stable, and on a remark Cox had made to him in the cart. I don't belong to the house. I hadn't a got no keys to get in and out o' nights, and if I took a hatful of gold, I'd be off with it into another country. Wouldn't you? He must took the gentleman's money. He knew where twas, and he have got it. I didn't, and I hadn't. Bradbury came down to the swan and asked the landlady a question or two. She gave him short answers. He then told her that he wished to examine the wine that had come down from Mr. Gardiner's room. The landlady looked him in the face and said it had been drunk by the servants or thrown away long ago. I have my doubts of that, said he. And welcome, said she. Then he wished to examine the keyholes. No, said she. There has been prying enough into my house. Said he angrily, You are obstructing justice. It is very suspicious. It is you that is suspicious, and a mischief-maker into the bargain, said she. How do I know what you might put into my wine, and my keyholes, and say you found it? You are well known, you Bow Street runners, for hanky-panky tricks. Have you got a search warrant to throw more discredit upon my house? No, then pack and learn the law before you teach it to me. Bradbury retired bitterly indignant, and his indignation strengthened his faint doubt of Cox's guilt. He set a friend to watch the swan, and he himself gave his mind to the whole case, and visited Cox in Newgate three times before his trial. The next novelty was that legal assistance was provided for Cox by a person who expressed compassion for his poverty and inability to defend himself, guilty or not guilty. 
and that benevolent person was Captain Cowan. In due course, Daniel Cox was arranged at the bar of the Old Bailey for robbery and murder. The deposition of the murdered man was put in by the Crown, and the witnesses sworn who heard it, and Captain Cowan was called to support a portion of it. He swore that he supped with the deceased, and loaded one pistol for him, while Mr. Gardiner loaded the other, lent him the key of his own door for further security, and himself slept in the city. The judge asked him where, and he said, Thirteen Farringdon Street. It was elicited from him that he had provided counsel for the prisoner. His evidence was very short and to the point. It did not directly touch the accused, and the defendant's counsel, in spite of his client's eager desire, declined to cross-examine Captain Cowan. He thought a hostile examination of so respectable witness, who brought nothing home to the accused, would only raise more indignation against his client. The prosecution was strengthened by the reluctant evidence of Barbara Lamb. She deposed that three years ago Cox had been detected by her stealing money from a gentleman's table in the Swan Inn, and she gave the details. The judge asked her whether this was at night. No, my lord, at about four of the clock. He is never in the house at night. The mistress can't abide him. Has he any key of the house? Oh dear, no, my lord. The rest of the evidence for the Crown is virtually before the reader. For the defence, it was proved that the man was found drunk, with no money nor keys upon him, and that the knife was found under the wall, and the blood was traceable from the wall to the stable. Bradbury, who proved this, tried to get in about the wine, but this was stopped as irrelevant. There is only one person under suspicion, said the judge, rather sternly. As counsel were not allowed in that day to make speeches to the jury, but only to examine and cross-examine and discuss points of law, Daniel Cox had to speak in his own defence. My lord, said he, it was my double done it. Your what? asked my lord, a little peevishly. My double, there's a rogue prowls about the swan at nights, which you couldn't tell him from me. Laughter from the court. You needn't to laugh me to the gallows. I tell you, he have got a nose like mine. Laughter from the court. Clerk of Arraigns, keep silence in the court, on pain of imprisonment. And he have got a waistcoat, the very spit of mine, and a tumble-down hat, such as I do wear. I saw him go by, and let himself in through the swan, with a key, and I told Sam Pot next morning. Judge, who is Sam Pot? Culprit. Why, my stable-boy, to be sure. Judge. Is he in court? Culprit. I don't know. Ah, there he is. Judge. Then you better call him. Culprit. Hi, Sam. Sam. Here be I. <laughs> Loud laughter. The judge explained calmly that to call a witness meant to put him in the box and swear him, and that although it was irregular, yet he should allow Pot to be sworn, if it would do the prisoner any good. Prisoner's counsel said he had no wish to swear Mr. Pott. Well, Mr. Gurney, said the judge, I don't think he can do you any harm, meaning in so desperate a case. Thereupon Sam Pott was sworn, and deposed the Cox had told him about his double. When? Often and often. Before the murder? Long before that. Counsel for the Crown. Did you ever see this double? Not I. Counsel. I thought not. 
daniel cox went on to say that on the night of the murder he was up with a sick horse and he saw his double let himself out of the inn the back way and then turned round and closed the door softly so he slipped out to meet him but the double saw him and made for the garden wall he ran up and caught him with one leg over the wall and seized a black bag he was carrying off the figure dropped it and he heard a lot of money chink that thereupon he cried thieves and seized the man but immediately received a blow and lost his senses for a time when he came to the man and the bags were both gone and he felt so sick that he staggered to the stable and drank a pint of neat brandy and he remembered no more till they pumped on him and told him he had robbed and murdered a gentleman inside the swan inn what they can't tell me said daniel beginning to shout is how i could know who has got money and who hasn't inside the swan inn i keeps the stables not the inn and where be my keys to open and shut the swan i never had none and where's the gentleman's money twas somebody in the inn as done it for to have the money and when you find the money you'll find the man the prosecuting counsel ridiculed this defence and inter alia asked the jury whether they thought it was a double the witness lamb had caught robbing in the inn three years ago the judge summed up very closely giving the evidence of every witness what follows is a mere synopsis of his charge he showed it was beyond doubt that mr gardner returned to the inn with money having collected his rents in wiltshire and this was known in the inn and proved by several and might have transpired in the yard or the tap-room the unfortunate gentleman took captain cowan a respectable person his neighbor in the inn into his confidence and revealed his uneasiness captain cowan swore that he supped with him but could not stay all night most unfortunately but he encouraged him left him his pistols and helped him load them then his lordship read the dying man's deposition the person thus solemnly denounced was found in the stable bleeding from a recent wound which seems to connect him at once with the deed as described by the dying man but here said my lord the chain is no longer perfect a knife taken from the swan was found under the garden wall and the first traces of blood commenced there and continue to the stable and were abundant on the straw and on the person of the accused this was provided by the constable and others no money was found on him and no keys that could have opened any outer doors of the swan inn the accused had however three years before been guilty of a theft from a gentleman in the inn which negatives his pretence that he always confined himself to the stables it did not however appear that on the occasion of the theft he had unlocked any doors or possessed the means the witness for the crown barbara lamb was clear on that the prisoner's own solution of the mystery was not very credible he said he had a double or a person wearing his clothes and appearance and he had seen this person prowling about long before the murder and had spoken of the double to one pot pot deposed that cox had spoken of this double more than once but admitted he never saw the double with his own eyes this double says the accused on the fatal night let himself out of the swan and escaped to the garden wall there he cox came up with this mysterious person and a scuffle ensued in which a bag was dropped and gave the sound of coin 
and then Cox held the man and cried thieves, but presently received a wound and fainted, and on recovering himself staggered to the stables and drank a pint of brandy. The story sounds ridiculous, and there is no direct evidence to back it, but there is a circumstance that lends some colour to it. There was one blood-stained instrument, and no more found on the premises, and that knife answers to the description given by the dying man, and indeed may be taken to be the very knife missing from his room. And this knife was found under the garden wall, and there the blood commenced and was traced to the stable. Here, said my lord, to my mind lies the defence. Look at the case on all sides, gentlemen, and undoubted murder done by hands, no suspicion resting on any known person but the prisoner, a man who had already robbed in the inn, a confident recognition by one whose deposition is legal evidence, but evidence we cannot cross-examine, and a recognition by moonlight only, and in the heat of a struggle. If on this evidence, weakened not a little by the position of the knife and the traces of blood, and met by the prisoner's declaration, which accords with that single branch of the evidence, you have a doubt, it is your duty to give the prisoner the full benefit of that doubt, as I have endeavoured to do. And if you have no doubt, why, then you have only to support the law and protect the lives of peaceful citizens. Whoever has committed this crime, it certainly is an alarming circumstance that, in a public inn, surrounded by honest people, guarded by locked doors and armed with pistols, a peaceful citizen can be robbed like this of his money and his life. The jury saw a murder at an inn, an accused who had already robbed in that inn, and was denounced as the murderer by the victim. The verdict seemed to them to be cocks of impunity. They all slept at inns, a double they had never seen, undetected accomplices they had all heard of. They waited twenty minutes, and brought in their verdict. Guilty. The judge put on his black cap, and condemned Daniel Cox, to be hanged by the neck, till he was dead. End of section 12 Recording by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby. International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 13. The Knightsbridge Mystery by Charles Reed. Part 3. After the trial was over, and the condemned man went back to the prison to await his execution, Bradbury went straight to 13 Farrington Street and inquired for Captain Cowan. "'No such name here,' said the good woman of the house. "'But you keep lodgers?' "'Nay, we keep but one, and he is no captain. He is a city clerk.' "'Well, madam, it is not ideal curiosity, I assure you. 
but was not the lodger before him captain cowan laws no it was a parson your rakedly captains wouldn't suit the like of us twas a reverend clerk a grave old man he wasn't very well to do i thinks his cassock was worn but he paid his way keep late hours no not when he was in town but he had a country cure then you have let him in after midnight nay i keep no such hours i let him a pass-key he came in and out from the country when he chose i would have you to know he was an old man and a sober man and an honest man i'd wager my life on that and excuse me sir but who be you that you categorize me about my lodgers i'm an officer madam the simple woman turned pale and clasped her hands an officer she cried alack what have i done now why nothing madam said the wily bradbury an officer's business is to protect such as you not to trouble you for all the world there now i'll tell you where the shoe pinches this captain cowan has just sworn in a court of justice that he slept here on the fifteenth of last october he never did then our good parson had no acquaintances in the town not a soul ever visited him mother said a young girl peeping in i think he knew somebody of that very name he did ask me once to post a letter for him and it was to some man of worship and the name was cowan yes cowan twas i'm sure of it by the same token he never gave me another letter and that made me pay the more attention jane you are too curious said the mother and i am very much obliged to you my little maid said the officer and also to you madam and so he took his leave one evening all of a sudden captain cowan ordered a prime horse at the swan strapped his valise on before him and rode out of the yard post haste he went without drawing bridle to clapham and then looked round him and seeing no other horseman near trotted gently round into the borough then into the city and slept at an inn in holborn he had bespoke a particular room beforehand a little room he frequented he entered it with an air of anxiety but this soon vanished after he had examined the floor carefully his horse was ordered at five o'clock next morning he took a glass of strong waters at the door to fortify his stomach but breakfasted at uxbridge and fed his good horse he dined at beaconsfield halted at tame and supped with his son at oxford next day paid all the young man's debts and spent a week with him his conduct was strange boisterously gay and sullenly despondent by turns during the week came an unexpected visitor general sir robert barrington this officer was going out to america to fill an important office he had something in view for young cowan and came to judge quietly of his capacity but he did not say anything at that time for fear of exciting hopes he might possibly disappoint however he was much taken with the young man oxford had polished him his modest reticence until invited to speak recommended him to older men especially as his answers were judicious when invited to give his opinion the tutors also spoke very highly of him you may well love that boy said general barrington to the father god bless you for praising him said the other ah i love him too well soon after the general left cowan changed some gold for notes and took his departure for london 
having first sent word of his return. He meant to start after breakfast and make one day of it, but he lingered with his son and did not cross Magdalen Bridge till one o'clock. This time he rode through Dorchester, Benson, and Henley, and, as it grew dark, resolved to sleep at Maidenhead. Just after Hurley Bottom, at four crossroads, three highwaymen spurred on him from right and left. Your money or your life! He whipped a pistol out of his holster, and pulled at the nearest head in a moment. The pistol misfired. The next moment a blow from the butt of a horse pistol dazed him, and he was dragged off his horse, and his valise emptied in a minute. Before they had done with him, however, there was a clatter of hoofs, and the robbers sprang to their nags, and galloped away for the bare life, as a troop of yeomanry rode up. The thing was so common, the newcomers read the situation at a glance, and some of the best mounted gave chase. The others attended to Captain Cowan, caught his horse, strapped on his valise, and took him with them into Maidenhead, his head aching, his heart sickening, and raging by turns. All his gold gone, nothing left but a few one-pound notes that he had sewn into the lining of his coat. He reached the swan next day in a state of sullen despair. A curse is on me, he said, my pistol misfire, my gold gone. He was welcomed warmly. He stirred with surprise. Barbara led the way back to his old room and opened it. He started back. Not there, he said with a shudder. Alack, Captain, we have kept it for you. Sure, you are not afeard. No, said he doggedly. No hope, no fear. She stirred but said nothing. He had hardly got into the room when, click, a key was turned in the door of communication. A traveller there, said he. Then bitterly, things are soon forgotten in an inn. Not by me, said Barbara solemnly. But you know our dame, she can't let money go by her. "'Tis our best room, mostly, and nobody would use it that knows the place. "'He is a stranger. He is from the wars. Will have it he is English, but talks foreign. "'He is civil enough when he is sober, but when he has got a drop "'he does maunder away, to be sure, and sing such songs I never.' "'How long has he been here?' asked Cowan. Five days, and the mistress hopes that he will stay as many more, just to break the spell.' "'He can stay or go,' said Cowan. I'm in no humour for company. I have been robbed, girl. You robbed, sir? Not openly, I'm sure. Openly, but by numbers, three of them. I should soon have sped one, but my pistol snapped fire just like his. There, leave me, girl. Fate is against me, and a curse upon me. Bubbled out of my fortune in the city, robbed of my gold upon the road. To be honest is to be a fool. He flung himself on the bed with a groan of anguish and the ready tears ran down soft Barbara's cheeks. She had tact, however, in her humble way, and did not prattle to a strong man in a moment of wild distress. She just turned and cast a lingering glance of pity on him, and went to fetch him food and wine. She had often seen an unhappy man the better for eating and drinking. When she was gone, he cursed himself for his weakness in letting her know his misfortunes. They would be all over the house soon. Why, that fellow next door must have heard me bawl them out. I have lost my head, said he, and I never needed it more. Barbara returned with the cold powdered beef and carrots and a bottle of wine she had paid for herself. She found him sullen, 
but composed. He made her solemnly promise not to mention his losses. She consented readily, and said, You know I can hold my tongue. When he had eaten and drunk and felt stronger, he resolved to put a question to her. How about that poor fellow? She looked puzzled for a moment, then turned pale, and said solemnly, "'Tis for this day week, I hear. "'Twas to be a last week. "'But the king did not respite him for a fortnight. "'Ah, indeed. "'Do you know why?' "'No, indeed. "'In his place I'd rather have been put out of the way at once, "'for they will surely hang him. "'Now in our day the respite is very rare. "'A criminal is hanged or reprieved. "'But at the period of our story "'men were often respited for short or long periods.' yet suffered at last. One poor wretch was respited for two years, yet executed. This respite, therefore, was nothing unusual, and Cowan, though he looked thoughtful, had no downright suspicion of anything so serious to himself as really lay beneath the surface of this not unusual occurrence. I shall, however, let the reader know more about it. The judge, in reporting the case, notified to the proper authority that he desired his majesty to know he was not entirely at ease about the verdict. There was a lacuna in the evidence against this prisoner. He stated the flaw in a very few words. But he did not suggest any remedy. Now the public clamoured for the man's execution, that travellers might be safe. The king's adviser thought that if the judge had serious doubts, it was his business to tell the jury so. The order for execution issued. Three days after this the judge received a letter from Bradbury, which I give verbatim. The King versus Cox My lord, forgive my writing to you in a case of blood. There is no other way. Daniel Cox was not defended. Counsel went against his wish, and would not throw suspicion on any other. That made it Cox or nobody. But there was a man in the inn whose conduct was suspicious. He furnished the wine that made the victim sleepy and, I must tell you, the landlady would not let me see the remnant of the wine. She did everything to baffle me, and defeat justice. He loaded two pistols, so that neither could go off. He has got a passkey, and goes in and out of the swan at all hours. He provided counsel for Daniel Cox. That could only be through compunction. He swore in court that he slept that night at 13 Farringdon Street. Your lordship will find it in your notes." For twas you put the question, and methinks heaven inspired you. An hour after the trial I was at 13 Farringdon Street. No Cowan and no captain had ever lodged there, nor slept there. The present lodger, a city clerk, lodger at date of murder, an old clergyman that said he had a country cure, and got the simple body to trust him with a pass-key, so he came in and out at all hours of the night. This man was no clerk, but, as I believe, the cracksman that did the job at the Swan. My lord, there is always two in a job of this sort, the professional man and the confederate. Cowan was the confederate, accused the wine, loaded the pistols, and lent his pass-key to the cracksman. The cracksman opened the door with his tools, unless Cowan had made him duplicate keys. Neither of them intended violence, or they would have used their own weapons. The wine was drugged expressly to make that needless. The cracksman, instead of a black mask, put on a calfskin waistcoat and a bottle nose. 
and that passed muster for cox by moonlight it puzzled cox by moonlight and deceived gardiner by moonlight for the love of god get me a respite for the innocent man and i will undertake to bring the crime home to the cracksman and to his confederate cowan bradbury signed this with his name and quality the judge was not sorry to see the doubt his own wariness had raised so powerfully confirmed he sent this missive on to the minister with the remark that he had received a letter which ought not to have been sent to him but to those in whose hands the prisoner's fate rested he thought it his duty however to transcribe from his notes the question he had put to captain cowan and his reply that he had slept at thirteen farrington street on the night of the murder and also the substance of the prisoner's defence with the remark that as stated by that uneducated person it had appeared ridiculous but after studying this bow street officer's statement and assuming them to be in the main correct it did not appear ridiculous but only remarkable and it reconciled all the undisputed facts whereas that cox was the murderer was and ever must remain irreconcilable with the position of the knife and the track of the blood bradbury's letter and the above comment found their way to the king and he granted what was asked a respite bradbury and his fellows went to work to find the old clergyman alias cracksman but he was melted away without a trace and they got no other clue but during cowan's absence they got a traveller i e a disguised agent into the inn and found relics of wax in the keyholes of cowan's outer door and of the door of communication bradbury sent this information in two letters one to the judge and one to the minister but this did not advance him much he had long been sure that cowan was in it it was the professional hand the actual robber and the murderer he wanted the days succeeded one another nothing was done he lamented too late he had not applied for a reprieved or even a pardon he deplored his own presumption in assuming that he could unravel such a mystery entirely his busy brain schemed night and day he lost his sleep and even his appetite at last in sheer despair he proposed to himself a new solution and acted upon it in the dark and with consummate subtlety for he said to himself i am in deeper water than i thought lord how they skim a case at the old bailey they took a pond for a puddle and go to fathom it with a forefinger captain cowan sank into a settled gloom but he no longer courted solitude it gave him the horrors he preferred to be in company though he no longer shone in it he made acquaintance with his neighbor and rather liked him the man had been in the commissariat department and seemed half surprised at the honor a captain did him in conversing with him but he was well versed in all the incidents of the late wars and cowan was glad to go with him into the past for the present was dead and the future horrible this mr cutler was so deferential when sober was inclined to be more familiar when in his cups and that generally ended in his singing and talking to himself in his own room in the absurdest way he never went out without a black leather case strapped across his back like a dispatch box when joked and asked as to the content he used to say papers papers curtly one evening being rather the worse for liquor he dropped it and there was a metallic sound this was immediately commented on by the wags of the company that fell heavy for paper said one 
There was a ring, said another. Come, unload thy pack, comrade, and show us thy papers. Cutler was sobered in a moment, and looked scared. Cowan observed this, and quietly left the room. He went upstairs to his own room, and, mounting on the chair, he found a thin place in the partition, and made an eyelet hole. That very night he made use of this with good effect. Cutler came up to bed, singing and whistling, but presently threw down something heavy, and was silent. Cowan spied, and saw him kneel down, draw from his bosom a key suspended round his neck by a ribbon, and open the dispatch-box. There were papers in it, but only to deaden the sound of a great many new guineas that glittered in the light of the candle, and seemed to fire, and fill the receptacle. Cutler looked furtively round, plunged his hand in them, took them out by handfuls, admired them, kissed them, and seemed to worship them, locked them up again, and put the black case under his pillow. While they were glaring in the light, Cowan's eyes flashed with an unholy fire. He clutched his hands at them where he stood, but they were inaccessible. He sat down despondent, and cursed the injustice of fate. Bubbled out of money in the city, robbed on the road, but when another had money it was safe. He left his keys in the locks of the doors, and his gold never quitted him. Not long after this discovery he got a letter from his son, telling him that the college bills for battles or commons had come in, and he was unable to pay it. He begged his father to disperse it, or he should lose credit. This tormented the unhappy father, and the proximity of gold tantalized him so that he bought a file of laudanum and secreted it about his person. Better die, said he, and leave my boy to Barrington. Such a legacy from his dead comrade will be sacred, and he has the world at his feet. He even ordered a bottle of red port, and kept it by him to swill the laudanum in, and so get drunk and die. But when it came to the point, he faltered. Meantime the day drew near for the execution of Daniel Cox. Bradbury had undertaken too much. His cracksmen seemed to the king's advisers as shadowy as the double of Daniel Cox. The evening before that fatal day, Cowan came to a wild resolution. He would go to Tyburn at noon, which was the hour fixed, and would die under that man's gibbet. So was this powerful mind unhinged. This desperate idea was uppermost in his mind when he went to his bedroom. But he rested. No, he would never play the coward, while there was a chance left on the cards, while there is life, there is hope. He seized the bottle, uncorked it, and tossed off a glass. It was potent, and tingled through his veins, and warmed his heart. He set the bottle down before him. He filled another glass, but before he put it to his lips, jocund noises were heard coming up the stairs, and noisy drunken voices, and two boon companions of his neighbour Cutler, who had a double-bedded room opposite him, parted with him for the night. He was not drunk enough, it seems, for he kept demanding t'other bottle. His friends, however, were of a different opinion. They bundled him into his room, and locked him in from the other side, and shortly after burst into their own room, and were more garrulous than articulate. Cutler, thus disposed of, kept saying and shouting and whining that he must have t'other bottle. 
in short any one at a distance would have thought he was announcing sixteen different propositions so various were the accents of anger grief expostulation deprecation supplication imprecation and winding tenderness in which he declared he must have t'other bottle at last he came bump against the door of communication neighbor said he your worship i mean great man of war well sir let's have t'other bottle cowan's eyes flashed he took out his phial of laudanum and emptied about a fifth part of it into the bottle cutler whined at the door do open the door your worship and let's have t'other why the key is on your side a feeble-minded laugh at the discovery a fumbling with the key and the door opened and cutler stood in the doorway with his cravat disgracefully loose and his visage wreathed in foolish smiles his eyes joggled he pointed with a mixture of surprise and low cunning at the table why there tis other bottle let's have em nay said cowan i drain no bottles at this time one glass suffices me I drink your health he raised his glass cutler grabbed the bottle and said brutally and i'll drink yours and shut the door with a slam but was too intent on his prize to lock it cowan sat and listened he heard the wine gurgle and the drunkard draw a long breath of delight then there was a pause then a snatch of song rather melodious and more articulate than mr cutler's recent attempts at discourse then another gurgle and another loud ah then a vocal attempt which broke down by degrees then a snore then a somnolent remark all right then a staggering on to his feet then a swaying to and fro and a subsiding against the door then by and by a little reel at the bed and a fall flat on the floor then stertorous breathing Cowan sat at the keyhole some time, then took off his boots and softly mounted his chair and applied his eye to the peephole. Cutler was lying on his stomach between the table and the bed. Cowan came to the door on tiptoe and turned the handle gently. The door yielded. He lost nerve for the first time in his life. What horrible shame! Should the man come to his senses and see him? He stepped back into his own room ripped up his portmanteau and took out from between the leather and the lining a disguise and a mask he put them on then he took his loaded cane for he thought to himself no more stabbing in that room and he crept through the door like a cat the man lay breathing stertorously and his lips blowing out at every exhalation like lifeless lips urged by a strong wind so that cowan began to fear not that he might wake but that he might die it flashed across him he should have to leave england what he came to do seemed now wonderfully easy he took the key by its ribbon carefully off the sleeper's neck unlocked the dispatch box took off his hat and put the gold into it locked the dispatch box replaced the key took up his hatful of money and retired slowly on tiptoe as he came he had but deposited his stick and the booty on the bed when the sham drunkard pinned him from behind and uttered a shrill whistle with a fierce snarl cowan whirled his captor round like a feather and dashed with him against the post of his own door stunning the man so that he relaxed his hold and cowan whirled him round again and kicked him in the stomach so fairly that he was doubled up out of the way 
and contributed nothing more to the struggle except his last meal at this very moment two bow street runners rushed madly upon cowan through the door of communication he met one in full career with a blow so tremendous that it sounded through the house and drove him all across the room against the window where he fell senseless the other he struck rather short and though the blood spurted and the man staggered he was on him again in a moment and pinned him cowan a master of pugilism got his head under his left shoulder and pummeled him cruelly but the fellow managed to hold on till a powerful foot kicked in the door at a blow and bradbury himself sprang on captain cowan with all the fury of a tiger he seized him by the throat from behind and throttled him and set his knee to his back the other though mauled and bleeding whipped out a short rope and pinioned him in a turn of the hand then all stood panting but the disabled men and once more the passage and the room were filled with pale faces and panting bosoms lights flashed on the scene and instantly loud screams from the landlady and her maids and as they screamed they pointed with trembling fingers and well they might there caught red-handed in an act of robbery and violence a few steps from the place of the mysterious murder stood the stately figure of captain cowan and the mottled face and bottle nose of daniel cox condemned to die in just twelve hours time end of section thirteen recording by edward kirkby warwick england international short stories volume two english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by edward kirkby international short stories volume two english stories edited by william patton section fourteen the knightsbridge mystery by charles reed part four ah scream ye fools roared bradbury that couldn't see a church by daylight then shaking his fist at cowan thou villain tisn't one man you have murdered tis two but please god i'll save one of them yet and hang you in his place way there not a moment to lose in another minute they were all in the yard and a hackney coach sent for captain cowan said to bradbury this thing on my face is choking me ah better than you've been choked at tyburn and all hang me don't pillory me i've served my country bradbury removed the wax mask he said afterward he had no power to refuse the villain he was so grand and gentle thank you sir now what can i do for you save daniel cox ah do that and i'll forgive you give me a sheet of paper bradbury impressed by the man's tone of sincerity took him into the bar and getting all his men round him placed paper and ink before him he addressed to general barrington in attendance on his majesty these general see his majesty betimes tell him from me that daniel cox condemned to die at noon is innocent and get him a reprieve o barrington come to your lost comrade the bearer will tell you where i am i cannot edward cowan send a man you can trust to windsor with that and take me to my most welcome death a trusty officer was dispatched to windsor and in about an hour cowan was lodged in newgate 
all that night bradbury labored to save the man that was condemned to die he knocked up the sheriff of middlesex and told him all don't come to me said the sheriff go to the minister he rode to the minister's house the minister was up his wife gave a ball windows blaring shadows dancing musics lights night turned into day bradbury knocked the door flew open and revealed a line of bedesigned footmen dotted at intervals up the stairs i must see my lord life or death i'm an officer from bow street you can't see my lord ha is entertaining the petition ambassador and his suite i must see him or an innocent man will die to-morrow tell him here's a guinea is there step aside here he waited in torments till the message went through the gamut of lackeys and got more or less mutilated to the minister he detached a buffet who proposed to bradbury to call at the doolittle office in westminster next morning no said bradbury i don't leave the house till i see him innocent blood shall not be spilled for want of a word in time the buffer retired and in came a duffer who said the occasion was not convenient ah but it is said bradbury and if my lord is not here in five minutes i'll go upstairs and tell my tale before them all and see if they are all hairdressers dummies without heart or conscience or sense in five minutes in came a gentleman with an order on his breast and said you are a bow street officer yes my lord name bradbury you say the man condemned to die to-morrow is innocent yes my lord how do you know just taken the real culprit when is the other to suffer twelve to-morrow seems short time hmm will you be good enough to take a line to the sheriff formal message to-morrow the actual message ran delay execution of cox till we hear from windsor bearer will give reasons with this bradbury hurried away not to the sheriff but to the prison and infected the jailer and the chaplain and all the turnkeys with pity for the condemned and the spirit of delay bradbury breakfasted and washed his face and off to the sheriff sheriff was gone out bradbury hunted from pillar to post and could find him nowhere he was at last obliged to go and wait for him at newgate he arrived at the stroke of twelve to superintend the execution bradbury put the minister's note into his hand this is no use said he i want an order from her majesty or the privy council at least not to delay suggested the chaplain you have and the day for it all the day i can't be all the day hanging a single man my time is precious gentlemen then his bark being worse than his bite he said i shall come again at four o'clock and then if there is no news from windsor the law must take its course he never came again though for even as he turned his back to retire there was a faint cry from the farthest part of the crowd a paper raised on a hussar's lance and as the mob fell back on every aide a royal aide de camp rode up followed closely by the mounted runner and delivered to the sheriff a reprieve under the sign manual of his majesty george i at two p m of the same day general sir robert barrington reached newgate and saw captain cowan in private that unhappy man fell on his knees and made a confession barrington was horrified and turned as cold as ice to him he stood erect as a statue a soldier to rob said he murder was bad enough but to rob 
Cowan, with his head and hands all hanging down, could only say faintly, I have been robbed and ruined, and it was for my boy. Ah, me, what will become of him? I have lost my soul for him, and now he will be ruined and disgraced by me. Who would have died for him? The strong man shook with agony, and his head and hands almost touched the ground. Sir Robert Barrington looked at him and pondered. No, said he, relenting a little, that is the one thing I can do for you. I had made up my mind to take your son to Canada as my secretary, and I will take him. But he must change his name. I sail next Thursday. The broken man stirred wildly, then started up and blessed him, and from that moment the wild hope entered his breast that he might keep his son unstained by his crime, and even ignorant of it. Barrington said that was impossible, but yielded to the father's prayers, and consented to act as if it was possible. He would send a messenger to Oxford, with money, and instructions to bring the young man up and put him on board the ship at Gravesend. This difficult scheme once conceived, there was not a moment to be lost. Barrington sent down a mounted messenger to Oxford, with money and instructions. Cowan sent for Bradbury, and asked him when he was to appear at Bow Street. Tomorrow, I suppose. Do me a favour. Get all your witnesses. Make the case complete, and show me only once to the public before I am tried. Well, Captain, said Bradbury, you are square with me about poor Cox. I don't see as it matters much to you, but I'll not say you nay. He saw the solicitor for the Crown, and asked a few days to collect all his evidence. The functionary named Friday. This was conveyed next day to Cowan and put him in a fever. It gave him a chance of keeping his son ignorant, but no certainty. Ships were eternally detained at Gravesend, waiting for a wind. There were no steam-tugs then to draw them into the blue water. Even going down the channel, letters boarded them if the wind slacked. He walked his room to and fro, like a caged tiger, day and night. Wednesday evening Barrington came with the news that his son was at the Star in Cornhill. I have got him to bed, said he, and, Lord forgive me, I have let him think he will see you before we go down to Gravesend to-morrow. Then let me see him, said the miserable father. He shall know naught from me. They applied to the jailer, and urged that he could be a prisoner all the time, surrounded by constables in disguise. No, the jailer would not risk his place and an indictment. Bradbury was sent for, and made light of the responsibility. I brought him here, said he, and I will take him to the star. I and my fellows. Indeed, he will give us no trouble this time. Why, that would blow the gaff, and make the young gentleman fly to the whole thing. It can only be done by authority, was the jailer's reply. Then by authority it shall be done, said Sir Robert. Mr. Bradbury, have three men here with a coach at one o'clock, and a regiment, if you like, to watch the star. Punctually at one came Barrington with an authority. It was a request from the Queen. The jailer took it respectfully. It was an authority not worth a button, but he knew he could not lose his place with this writing to brandish at need. The father and son dined with the general at the Star. Bradbury and one of his fellows waited as private servants. Other officers in plain clothes watched back and front. At three o'clock father and son parted the son with many tears, the father with dry eyes, but a voice that trembled as he blessed him. Young Cowan, now Morris, 
went down to Gravesend with his chief, the criminal back to Newgate, respectfully bowed from the door of the star by landlord and waiters. At first he was comparatively calm, but as the night advanced became restless, and by and by began to pace his cell again like a caged lion. At twenty minutes past eleven a turnkey brought him a line. A horseman had galloped in with it from Gravesend. A fair wind, we weigh anchor at the full tide. It is a merchant vessel, and the captain under my orders to keep off shore and take no messages. Farewell. Turn to the guard you have forgotten. He alone can pardon you. On receiving this note, Cowan betook him to his knees. In this attitude the jailer found him when he went his round. He waited till the captain rose, and then let him know that an able lawyer was in waiting, instructed to defend him at Bow Street next morning. The truth is, the females of the Swan had club money for this purposes. Cowan declined to see him. I thank you, sir, he said. I will defend myself. He said, however, he had a little favour to ask. I have been, said he, of late much agitated and fatigued, and a sore trial awaits me in the morning. A few hours of unbroken sleep would be a boon to me. The turnkeys must come in to see you are all right. It is their duty, but I will lie in sight of the door if they will be good enough not to wake me. There can be no objection to that, Captain, and I am glad to see you calmer. Thank you. Never calmer in my life. He got his pillow, set two chairs, and composed himself to sleep. He put the candle on the table, that the turnkeys might peep through the door and see him. Once or twice they peeped in very softly, and saw him sleeping in the full light of the candle, to moderate which, apparently, he had thrown a white handkerchief over his face. At nine in the morning they brought him his breakfast, as he must be at Bow Street between ten and eleven. When they came so near him, it struck them he lay too still. They took off the handkerchief. He had been dead some hours. Yes, there, calm, grave, and noble, incapable, as it seemed, either of the passions that had destroyed him, or the tender affection which redeemed yet inspired his crimes, lay the corpse of Edward Cohen. Thus miserably perished a man in whom were many elements of greatness. He left what little money he had to Bradbury, in a note imploring him to keep particulars out of the journals for his son's sake, and such was the influence on Bradbury of the scene at the star, the man's dead face, and his dying words, that, though public detail was his interest, nothing transpired but that the gentleman who had been arrested on suspicion of being concerned in the murder at the Swan Inn had committed suicide, to which was added by another hand. Cox, however, was the King's pardon, and the affair still remained shrouded with mystery. Cox was permitted to see the body of Cowan, and whether the features had gone back to youth, or his own brain, long sobered in earnest, had enlightened his memory, recognized him as a man he had seen committed for horse-stealing at Ipswich, when he himself was the Murr's groom, but some girl lent the accused a file, and he cut his way out of the cage. Cox's calamity was his greatest blessing. He went into Newgate scarcely knowing there was a god. He came out thoroughly enlightened in that respect, by the teaching of the chaplain and the death of Cowan. He went in a drunkard. The noose that dangled over his head so long terrified him into lifelong sobriety. 
for he laid all the blame on liquor and he came out as bitter a foe to drink as drink had been to him his case excited sympathy a considerable sum was subscribed to set him up in trade he became a horse dealer on a small scale but he was really a most excellent judge of horses and being sober enlarged his business horsed a coach or two attended fairs and eventually made a fortune by dealing in cavalry horses under government contracts as his money increased his nose diminished and when he died old and regretted only a pink tinge revealed the habits of his earlier life mrs martha cust and barbara lamb were no longer sure but they doubted to their dying day the innocence of the ugly fellow and the guilt of the handsome civil-spoken gentleman but they converted nobody to their opinion for they gave their reasons end of section 14 recording by edward kirkby warwick england international short stories volume 2 english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by lynn thompson international short stories volume 2 english stories edited by william patton section 15 the courting of dinah shad by rudyard kipling part one all day i had followed at the heels of a pursuing army engaged on one of the finest battles that ever camp of exercise beheld thirty thousand troops had by the wisdom of the government of india been turned loose over a few thousand square miles of country to practice in peace what they would never attempt in war the army of the south had finally pierced the center of the army of the north and was pouring through the gap hotfoot to capture a city of strategic importance its front extended fanwise the sticks being represented by regiments strung out along the line of route backward to the divisional transport columns and all the lumber that trails behind an army on the move on its right the broken left of the army of the north was flying in mass chased by the southern horse and hammered by the southern guns till these had been pushed far beyond the limits of their last support then the flying army of the north sat down to rest while the commandant of the pursuing force telegraphed that he held it in check and observation unluckily he did not observe that three miles to his right flank a flying column of northern horse with a detachment of gorkhas and british troops had been pushed round as fast as the falling light allowed to cut across the entire rear of the southern army to break as it were all the ribs of the fan where they converged by striking at the transport reserve ammunition and artillery supplies their instructions were to go in avoiding the few scouts who might not have been drawn off by the pursuit and create sufficient excitement to impress the southern army with the wisdom of guarding their own flank and rear before they captured cities it was a pretty manoeuvre neatly carried out speaking for the second division of the second army our first intimation of it was at twilight when the artillery were laboring in deep sand 
most of the escort were trying to help them out and the main body of the infantry had gone on a noah's ark of elephants camels and the mixed menagerie of an indian transport train bubbled and squealed behind the guns when there rose up from nowhere in particular british infantry to the extent of three companies who sprung to the heads of the gun horses and brought all to a standstill amid oaths and cheers how's that umpire said the major commanding the attack and with one voice the drivers and limber gunners answered hout while the colonel of artillery sputtered all your scouts are charging our main body said the major your flanks are unprotected for two miles i think we've broken the back of this division and listen there go the gorkas a weak fire broke from the rear guard more than a mile away and was answered by cheerful howlings the gorkas who should have swung clear of the second division had stepped on its tail in the dark but drawing off hastened to reach the next line which lay almost parallel to us five or six miles away our columns swayed and surged irresolutely three batteries the divisional ammunition reserve the baggage and a section of hospital and bearer corps the commandant ruefully promised to report himself cut up to the nearest umpire and commending his cavalry and all other cavalry to the care of eblis toiled on to resume touch with the rest of the division we'll bivouac here tonight said the major i have a notion that the gorkas will get caught they may want us to reform on stand easy till the transport gets away a hand caught my beast's bridle and led him out of the choking dust a larger hand deftly canted me out of the saddle and two of the hugest hands in the world received me sliding pleasant is the lot of the special correspondent who falls into such hands as those of privates mulvaney authoress and leroyd and that's all right said the irishman calmly we thought we'd find you somewhere hereby is there anything of yours in the transport Authoress'll fetch it out Authoress did fetch it out from under the trunk of an elephant in the shape of a servant and an animal both laden with medical comforts the little man's eyes sparkled if the brutal and licentious soldiery of these parts get sight of the thruck said mulvaney making practised investigation they'll loot everything they're being fed on iron filings and dog biscuit these days but glory's no compensation for a bellyache praise be we're here to protect you sir beer sausage bread soft and that's a curiosity soup in a tin whiskey by a smell of it and fowls mother of moses but ye take the field like a confectioner tis scandalous here's a officer said authoress significantly when the sergeant's done lushing the private may clean the spot I bundled several things into Mulvaney's haversack before the major's hand fell on my shoulder and he said tenderly Requisition for the Queen's service Worsley was quite wrong about special correspondence. They are the best friends of the soldier Come and take potluck with us tonight And so it happened amid laughter and shoutings that my well-considered commissariat Melted away to reappear on the mess table which was a waterproof sheet spread on the ground the flying column had taken three days ration with it and there be few things nastier than government rations especially when government is experimenting with german toys erbswurst 
tinned beef of surpassing tinniness compressed vegetables and meat biscuits may be nourishing but what thomas atkins wants is bulk in his inside the major assisted by his brother officers purchased goats for the camp and so made the experiment of no effect long before the fatigue party sent to collect brushwood had returned the men were settled down by their valises kettles and pots had appeared from the surrounding country and were dangling over fires as the kid and the compressed vegetables bubbled together there rose a cheerful clinking of mess tins outrageous demands for a little more stuffing with that there liver wing and gust on gust of chaff as pointed as a bayonet and as delicate as a gun butt the boys are in a good temper said the major they'll be singing presently well a night like this is enough to keep them happy over our heads burned the wonderful indian stars which are not all pricked in on one plane but preserving an orderly perspective draw the eye through the velvet darkness of the void up to the barred doors of heaven itself the earth was a gray shadow more unreal than the sky we could hear her breathing lightly in the pauses between the howling of the jackals the movement of the wind in the tamarisks and the fitful mutter of musketry fire leagues away to the left a native woman in some unseen hut began to sing the mail train thundered past on its way to delhi and a roosting crow cawed drowsily then there was a belt loosening silence about the fires and the even breathing of the crowded earth took up the story the men full fed turned to tobacco and song their officers with them happy is the subaltern who can win the approval of the musical critics in his regiment and is honored among the more intricate step dancers by him as by him who plays cricket craftily will thomas atkins stand in time of need when he will let a better officer go on alone the ruined tombs of forgotten mussulman saints heard the ballad of agra town the buffalo battery marching to kabul the long long indian day the place where the punkah coolie died and that crashing chorus which announces youth's daring spirit manhood's fire firm hand and eagle eye must be a choir who would aspire to see the gray boar die today of all those jovial thieves who appropriated my commissariat and lay and laughed round that waterproof sheet not one remains they went to camps that were not of exercise and battles without umpires burma the sudan and the frontier fever and fight took them in their time i drifted across to the men's fires in search of mulvaney whom i found greasing his feet by the blaze there is nothing particularly lovely in the sight of a private thus engaged after a long day's march but when you reflect on the exact proportion of the might majesty dominion and power of the british empire that stands on those feet you take an interest in the proceedings there's a blister bad luck to it on the heel said mulvaney i can't touch it prick it out little man authoress produced his housewife eased the trouble with a needle stabbed mulvaney in the calf with the same weapon and was incontinently kicked into the fire i've broke the best of my toes over you you grinning child of disruption said mulvaney sitting cross-legged and nursing his feet then seeing me oh it's you sir be welcome and take that marauding scut's place jock 
Hold him down on the cinders for a bit. But Orthrus escaped and went elsewhere as I took possession of the hollow he had scraped for himself and lined with his greatcoat. Leroyd, on the other side of the fire, grinned affably and in a minute fell fast asleep. There's the height of politeness for you, said Mulvaney, lighting his pipe with a flaming branch. But Jock's eaten half a box of your sardines at one gulp, and I think the tin, too. What's the best with you, sir, and how do you happen to be on the losing side this day when we captured you? The Army of the South is winning all along the line, I said. Thin that line's the hangman's rope, save in your presence. You'll learn tomorrow how we retreated to draw him on before we made them trouble. And that's what a woman does. By the same token, we'll be attacked before the dawning, and it would be better not to slip your boots. How do I know that? By the light of pure reason. Here are three companies, and as ever so far inside of the enemy's flank, and a crowd of roaring, tearing, and squealing cavalry's gone on just to turn out the whole nest of them. Of course, the enemy will pursue by brigades like us not, and then we'll have to run for it. Mark my words, I'm of the opinion of Polonius when he said, Don't fight with every scut for the pure joy of fighting, but if you do, knock the nose of him first, and frequent. We ought to have gone and helped the Gurkhas. But what do you know about Polonius? I demanded. This was a new side of Mulvaney's character. All that Shakespeare ever wrote, and a deal more than the gallery shouted, said the man of war, carefully lacing his boots. Did I not tell you and Silver's Theatre in Dublin when I was younger than I am now and a patron of the drama? Old Silver would never pay actor, man or woman. They're just Jews, and by consequence his companies was collapsible at the last minute. Then the boys would clamour to take a part, and oft as not, old Silver made them pay for the fun. Faith, I've seen Hamlet played with a new black eye, and the Queen as full as a cornucopia. I remember once Hogan, that listed in the Black Tyrone as was shot in South Africa, he seduced old Silver into giving him Hamlet's part, instead of me, that had a fine fancy for rhetoric in those days. Of course I went into the gallery and began to fill the pit with other people's hats, and I passed the time of day to Hogan, walking through Denmark like a hamstrung mule with a pawl on his back. Hamlet, says I, there's a hole in your heel. Pull up your stockings, Hamlet, says I. Hamlet, Hamlet, for the love of decency, drop that skull and pull up your stockings. The whole house began to tell him that. He stopped his soliloquisms, mid-between. My stocking may be coming down, or they may not, says he, screwing his eye into the gallery, for well he knew who I was. But after the performance is over, me and the ghost'll trample the guts out of you, Terence, with your ass's bray, with your ass's bray. And that's how I came to know about Hamlet. Aye, those days, those days. Did you ever have an ending devilment, and nothing to pay for it in your life, sir? Never without having to pay, I said. That's true. Tis main, and you consider on it. But it's the same with horse or foot. A headache if you drink, and a bellyache if you eat too much, and a heartache to keep you all down. Faith, the beast only gets the colic, and he's the lucky man. He dropped his head and stared into the fire, fingering his moustache for a while. From the far side of the bivouac, the voice of Corbett Nolan, senior subaltern of B Company, 
uplifted itself in an ancient and much appreciated song of sentiment the men moaning melodiously behind him the north wind blew coldly she dropped from that hour my own little kathleen my sweet little kathleen kathleen my kathleen kathleen no more with forty-five o's in the last word even at that distance you might have cut the soft south irish accent with a shovel for all we take we must pay but the price is cruel high murmured mulvaney when the chorus had ceased what's the trouble i said gently for i knew that he was a man of an unextinguishable sorrow here now said he you know what i am now i know what i meant to be at the beginning of my service i've told you time and again and what i have not dinah shad has and what am i oh mother mary of heaven an old drunken untrustable beast of a private that has seen the regiment change out from colonel to drummer boy not once nor twice but scores of times ay scores and me not so near getting promotion as in the fust and me living on and caping clear a clink not by my own good conduct but the kindness of some officer boy young enough to be son to me do i not know it can i not tell when i'm passed over at parade though i'm rocking full of liquor and ready to fall all in one piece such as even a sucking child might see because oh tis only old mulvaney and when i'm let off in the orderly room through some trick of the tongue and a ready answer and the old man's mercy is it smiling i feel when i fall away and go back to dinashad trying to carry out all off as a joke not i tis hell to me dumb hell through it all and next time when the fit comes i will be as bad again good cause the regiment has to know me for the best soldier in it better cause have i to know myself for the worst man i'm only fit to teach the new drafts what i'll never learn myself and i'm sure as though i heard it that the minute one of these pink-eyed recruities gets away from my mind you now and listen to this jim boy sure i am that the sergeant holds me up to join him for a warning so i teach as they say at musketry instruction by direct and ricochet fire lord be good to me for i have stood some trouble lie down and go to sleep said i not being able to comfort or advise you're the best man in the regiment and next to authoress the biggest fool lie down and wait till we're attacked what force will they turn out guns think you try that with your lords and ladies twisting and turning the talk though you mint it well you could say nothing to help me and yet you never knew what cause i had to be what i am begin at the beginning and go on to the end i said royally but rake up the fire a bit first i passed authoress's bayonet for a poker that shows how little you know what to do said mulvaney putting it aside fire takes all the heart out of the steel and the next time may be that our little man is fighting for his life his bradle'll break and you'll have killed him meaning no more than to keep yourself warm tis a recruit's trick that pass the cleaning rod sir i snuggled down abashed and after an interval the low even voice of mulvaney began End of section 15International Short Stories, Volume 2, English Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. International Short Stories, Volume 2. English Stories. Edited by William Patton. Section 16. The Courting of Dinah Shad by Rudyard Kipling. Part 2. Did I ever tell you how Dinah Shad came to be wife of mine? I dissembled a burning anxiety that I had felt for some months, ever since Dinah Shad, the strong, the patient, and the infinitely tender, had, of her own good love and free will, washed a shirt for me, moving in a barren land where washing was not. I can't remember, I said casually. Was it before or after you made love to Annie Bragin? and got no satisfaction the story of annie bragin is written in another place it is one of the many episodes in mulvaney's checkered career before before long before was that business of annie bragin and the corporal's ghost never woman was the worse for me when i had married dinah there's a time for all things and i know how to keep all things in place barring the drink that keeps me in my place with no hope of coming to be aught else begin at the beginning i insisted mrs mulvaney told me that you married her when you were quartered in crab bockhar barracks and the same is a cesspit said mulvaney piously she spoke through did dinah twas this way talking of that have you ever fallen in love sir i preserved the silence of the damned mulvaney continued then i will assume that ye have not i did in the days of my youth as i have more than once told you i was a man that filled the eye and delighted the soul of women never man was hated as i have been never man was loved as i no not within half a day's march of it for the first five years of my service when i was what i would give my soul to be now i took whatever was within my reach and digested it and that's more than most men can say drink i took and it did me no harm by the hollow of heaven i could play with four women at once and keep them from finding out anything about the other three and smile like a full-bone marigold through it all dick colhan of the battery we'll have down on us to-night could drive his team no better than i mine and i held the worse of cattle and so i lived and so i was happy till after that business with annie bragin she that turned me off as cool as a meat safe and taught me where i stood in the mind of an honest woman twas no sweet dose to take after that i sickened a while and took thought of my regimental work conceiting myself i would study and be a sergeant and a major general twenty minutes after that but on top of my ambitiousness there was an empty place in my soul and my own opinion of myself could not fill it says i to myself terence you're a great man and the best set up in the regiment go on and get promotion says meself to me what for says i to meself for the glory of it says meself to me will that fill these two strong arms of yours terence go to the devil says i to meself go to the married line says meself to me tis the same thing says i to meself if you're the same man it is said meself to me and with that i considered on it a long while did you ever feel that way sir i snored gently knowing that if mulvaney were uninterrupted he would go on 
the clamour from the bivouac fires beat up to the stars as the rival singers of the companies were pitted against each other so i felt that way and a bad time it was once being a fool i went into the married lines more for the sake of speaking to our old coloured sergeant shad than for any thruck with women folk i was a corporal then reduced afterwards but a corporal then i've got a photograph of myself to prove it you'll take a cup of tea with us says he i will that i says though tea is not my diversion "'Twould be better for you if it were,' says old Mother Shad. "'And she ought to know, for Shad, in the end of his service, "'drank bung full each night.' "'With that I took off my gloves. "'There was pipe clay in them, so that they stood alone, "'and pulled up my chair, looking round at the china ornaments "'and bits of things in the Shad's quarters. "'There were things that belonged to a woman, and no camp kit, "'here today and dissipated next.' you're comfortable in this place sergeant says i tis the wife that did it boy says he pointing the stem of his pipe to old mother shad and she smacked the top of his bald head upon the compliment that means you want money says she and then and then when the kettle was to be filled dinah came in my dinah her sleeves rolled up to the elbow and her hair in a golden glory over her forehead the big blue eyes beneath twinkling like stars on a frosty night and the tread of her two feet lighter than waste paper from the colonel's basket in orderly room when it's emptied being but a slip of a girl she went pink at seeing me and i twisted me moustache and looked at a picture for an inst the wall never show a woman that you care the snap of a finger for her and be gad she'll come bleating to your boot heels i suppose that's why you followed annie bragan till everybody in the married quarters laughed at you said i remembering that unhallowed wooing and casting off the disguise of drowsiness i'm laying down the general theory of the attack said mulvaney driving his foot into the dying fire if you read the soldier's pocket-book which never any soldier reads you'll see that there are exceptions when dinah was out of the door and twas as though the sunlight had gone too mother of heaven sergeant says i but is that your daughter i've believed that way these eighteen years says old shad his eyes twinkling but mrs shad has her own opinion like every other woman tis with yours this time for a miracle says mother shad then why in the name of fortune did i never see her before says i because you've been traipsing round with the married women these three years past she was a bit of a child till last year and she shot up with spring says old mother shad i'll traipse no more says i do you mean that says old mother shad looking at me sideways like a hen looks at a hawk when the chickens are running free try me and tell says i with that i pulled on my gloves drank off the tea and went out of the house as stiff as a general prayed for well i knew that dinah shad's eyes were in the small of my back out of the scullery window faith that was the only time i mourned i was not a cavalryman for the sake of the spurs to jingle i went out to think and i did a powerful lot of thinking but it all came round to that slip of a girl in the dotted blue dress with the blue eyes and the sparkle in them then i kept off canteen and i kept to the married quarters or near by on the chance of meeting dinah did i meet her oh my time passed did i not with a lump in my throat as big as my valise and my heart going like a farrier's gorge on a Saturday morning. Twas good day to you, Miss Dinah. 
and good day to you corporal for a week or two and divil a bit further i could get because of the respect i have for that girl that i could have broken between finger and thumb here i giggled as i recalled the gigantic figure of dinah shad when she handed me my shirt you may laugh grunted mulvaney but i'm speaking the truth and tis you that are in fault dinah was a girl that would have taken the imperiousness out of the duchess of clonmel in those days flower hand foot of shod air and the eyes of the morning she had that is my wife to-day old dinah and never aught else than dinah shad to me twas after three weeks standing off and on and never making headway except through the eyes that a little drummer boy grinned in me face when i had admonished him with the buckle of my belt for rioting all over the place and i'm not the only one that doesn't cape to barracks says he i took him off by the scruff of his neck my heart was hung on a trigger those days you'll understand and out with it says i or i'll leave no bone in your unbruck speak to dempsey says he howling dempsey witch says i ye unwashed limb of satan of the bobtail's dragoons said he he's seen her home from her aunt's house in the civil lines four times this fortnight child says i dropping him your tongue's stronger than your body go to your quarters i'm sorry i dressed you down at that i went four ways to once hunting dempsey i was mad to think that with all my airs among women i should have been cheated by a basin-faced fall of a cavalryman not fit to trust on a mule trunk presently i found him in our lines the bobtails was quartered next us and a tallowy top-heavy son of a she-mule he was with his big brass spurs and his plastrons on his epigastons and all but he never flinched a hair a word with you dempsey says i you've walked with dinah shad four times this fortnight gone what's that to you says he i'll walk forty times more and forty times on top of that ye shovel-footed clod-breaking infantry lance corporal before i could guard he had his gloved fist home on me cheek and down i went full sprawl will that content you says he blowing on his knuckles for all the world like a scots grey officer content says i for your own sake man take off your spurs peel your jacket and on glove tis the beginning of the overture stand up he stood all he knew but he never peeled his jacket and his shoulders had no fair play i was fighting for dinah shad and that cut on me cheek what hope had he for me stand up says i time and again and he was beginning to quarter the ground and guard high on go large this isn't riding school says i oh man stand up and let me get at ye but when i saw he would be running about i grip his stock in me left and his waist belt in me right and swung him clear to me right front head under he hammering me nose till the wind was knocked out of him on the bare ground stand up says i or i'll kick your head into your chest and i would have done it too so raging mad i was me collar bones broke says he help me back to lines i'll walk with her no more so i helped him back and was his collarbone broken i asked for i fancy that only leroyd would neatly accomplish that terrible throw he pitched on his left shoulder point it was next day the news was in both barracks and when i met dinah shad with a cheek like the regimental tailor's samples there was no good morning corporal or aught else and what have i done miss shad says i very bold planting myself forenst her that ye should not pass the time of day 
You've half killed Rough Rider Dempsey, says she, her dear blue eyes filling up. Maybe, says I. Was he a friend of yours that saw ye home four times in a fortnight? Yes, said she, very bold, but her mouth was down at the corners. And, and what's that to you? Ask Dempsey, says I, pretending to go away. Did you fight for me then, you silly man? She says, though she knew it all along. Who else, says I? And I took one pace to the front. I wasn't worth it, says she, fingering her apron. That's for me to say, says I. Shall I say it? Yes, says she in a saint's whisper. And at that I explained myself. And she told me what every man that is a man, and many that is a woman, hears once in his life. But what made you cry at starting, Dinah, darling, says I. Your, your bloody cheek, says she, ducking her little head down on my sash. I was duty for the day, and whimpering like a sorrowful angel. Now a man could take that two ways. I took it as pleased me best, and my first kiss with it. Mother of innocence, but I kissed her on the tip of her nose and under the eye, and a girl that lets a kiss come tumbleways like that has never been kissed before. Take note of that, sir. Then we went hand in hand to old mother Shad, like two little children, and she said it was no bad thing, and old Shad nodded behind his pipe, and Dinah ran away to her own room. That day I trod on rolling clouds. All earth was too small to hold me. Begad, I could have picked the sun out of the sky for a live coal to me pipe, so magnificent I was. But I took recruities at squad drill and began with the general battalion advance when I should have been balanced stepping em. Aye, that day, that day. A very long pause. Well, said I, it was all wrong said mulvaney with an enormous sigh and sure i know that every bit of it was me own foolishness that night i took maybe the half of three pints not enough to turn the hair of a man in his natural sinses but i was more than half drunk with pure joy and that canteen beer was so much whiskey to me i can't tell how it came about but because I had no thought for anyone except Dinah, because I hadn't slipped her little white arms from me neck five minutes, because the breath of her kiss was not gone from me mouth, I must go through the married lines on me way to quarters, and I must stay talking to a red-headed Mullingar heifer of a girl, Judy Sheehy, that was daughter to Mother Sheehy, the wife of Nick Sheehy, the canteen sergeant, the black curse of Shiley be on the whole brood that are above ground this day. And what are you holding your head that high for, Corporal? says Judy. Come in and try the cup of tea, she says, standing in the doorway. Being an unbustable fool and thinking of anything but tea, I went. Mother's at canteen, says Judy, smoothing the hair of hers that was like red snakes and looking at me cornerways out of her green cat's eyes. You'll not mind, Corporal. I can endure, says I. Old Mother Sheehy being no diversion of mine nor her daughter too judy fetched the tea things and put them on the table leaning over me very close to get them square i drew back thinking of dinah is it afraid you are of a girl alone says judy no says i why should i be that rests with the girl says judy drawing her chair next to mine then there let it rest says i and thinking i'd been a trifle unpolite i says the tea's not quite sweet enough for me taste Put your little finger in the cup, Judy. Twill make it nectar. 
what's nectar says she something very sweet says i and for the sinful life of me i could not help looking at her out of the corner of me eye as i was used to look at a woman go on wid ye corporal says she you're a flirt on me soul i'm not says i then you're a cruel handsome man and that's worse says she heaving big sighs and looking crossways you know your own mind says i twill be better for me if i did not she says there's a dale to be said on both sides of that says i not thinking say your own part of it then terence darling says she for begad i'm thinking i've said too much or too little for an honest girl and with that she puts her arm round me neck and kiss me there's no more to be said after that says i kissing her back again oh the main scut that i was my head ringing with dinah shad how does it come about sir that when a man has put the cometh on one woman he's sure bound to put it on another tis the same thing at musketry one day every shot goes wide or into the bank and the next day lay high lay low sight or snap you can't get off the bull's-eye for ten shots running that only happens to a man who has a good deal of experience he does it without thinking i replied thanking you for the compliment sir it may be so but i'm doubting whether you meant it for a compliment here now i sat there with judy on my knee telling me all manner of nonsense and only saying yes and no when i'd much better have kept tongue between teeth and that was not an hour after i had left dinah what i was thinking of i cannot say presently quiet as a cat old mother sheehy came in velvet drunk she had a daughter's red hair but twas bald in patches and i could see in her wicked old face clear as lightning what judy would be twenty years to come i was for jumping up but judy never moved terence has promised mother says she and the cold sweat broke out all over me old mother sheehy sat down of a heap and began playing with the cups then you're a well-matched pair she says very thick for he's the biggest rogue that ever spoiled the queen's shoe leather and i'm off judy says i you should not talk nonsense to your mother get her to bed girl nonsense says the old woman pricking up her ears like a cat and gripping the table edge twill be the most nonsensical nonsense for you you grinning badger if nonsense tis get clear you i'm going to bed i ran out into the dark me head in a stew and me heart sick but i had sense enough to see that i'd brought it all on myself and this to pass the time of day to a panjandrum of kelcats says i what i've said and what i've not said do not matter judy and her dam would hold me for a promised man and dinah will give me the go and i deserve it i will go and get drunk says i and forget about it for tis plain i'm not a marrying man on my way to canteen i ran against lascelles colour sergeant that was at e company a hard hard man with a torment of a wife you've the head of a drowned man on your shoulders says he and you're going where you'll get a worse one come back says he let me go says i i've thrown me luck over the wall with me own hand then that's not the way to get it back says he have out with your trouble you fool boy and i told him how the matter was he sucked his lower lip you've been trapped says he jew sheedy would be the better for a man's name to hers as soon as she can and you thought you'd put the come hither on her 
that's the natural vanity of the beast terence you're a big born fool but you're not bad enough to marry into that company if you said anything and for all your protestations i'm sure you did or did not which is worse eat at all lie like the father of all lies but come out of it free of judy do i not know what it is to marry a woman that was the very spit of judy when she was young i'm getting old and i've learnt patience but you terence you'd raise hand on judy and kill her in a year never mind if dinah gives you the go you deserved it never mind if the whole regiment laughs at you all day get shut of judy and her mother they can't drag you to church but if they do they'll drag you to hell go back to your quarters and lie down says he then over his shoulder you must have done with them next day i went to see dinah but there was no tucker in me as i walked i knew the trouble would come soon enough without any handling of mine and i dreaded it sore i heard judy calling me but i held straight on to the shad's quarters and dinah would have kissed me but i held her back when all's said darling says i you can give it me if you will though i misdoubt twill be so easy to come by then i had scarce begun to put the explanation into shape before judy and her mother came to the door i think there was a veranda but i'm forgetting will you not step in says dinah pretty and polite though the shads had no dealings with the shehees old mother shad looked up quick and she was the first to see the trouble for dinah was her daughter i'm pressed for time to-day says judy as bold as brass and i've only come for terence my promised man tis strange to find him here the day after the day dinah looked at me as though i had hit her and i answered straight there was some nonsense last night at the shehees quarters and judy's carrying on the joke darling says i at the shehees quarters says dinah very slow and judy cut in with he was there from nine till ten dinah shad and the better half of that time i was sitting on his knee dinah shad ye may look and ye may look and ye may look me up and down but ye won't took away that terence is my promised man terence darling tis time for us to be coming home dinah shad never said a word to judy ye left me at half past eight says she to me and i never thought that ye'd leave me for judy promises or no promises go back with her you that have to be fetched by a girl i'm done with you says she and she ran into her own room her mother following so i was alone with those two women and at liberty to spake my sentiments judy sheehy says i if you made a fall of me between the lights you shall not do it in the day i never promised you words or lines you lie says old mother sheehy and may it choke you where you stand she was far gone in drink and though it choked me where i stood i'd not change said i go home judy i take shame for a decent girl like you dragging your mother out bareheaded on this errand here now and have it for an answer i gave me word to dinah shad yesterday and more blame to me i was with you last night talking nonsense but nothing more you've chosen to try to hold me on it i will not be held thereby for anything in the world is that enough judy went pink all over and i wish you joy of the perjury says she you've lost a woman that would have worn her hand to the bone for your pleasure indeed terence you were not thrapped lascelles must have spoken plain to her i am as such as dinah is deed i am 
you've lost a fool of a girl that'll never look at you again and you've lost what you never had your common honesty if you manage your men as you manage your love-making small wonder they call you the worst corporal in the company come away mother says she but devil a foot would the old woman budge do you hold by that says she peering up under her thick gray eyebrows ay i would said i though dinah gave me the go twenty times i'll have no thruck with you or yours says i take your child away you shameless woman and am i shameless says she bringing her hands up above her head then what are you you lying shaming weak-kneed dirty-souled son of a sutler am i shameless who put the open shame on me and my child that we should go begging through the lines in daylight for the broken word of a man double portion of my shame be on you terence mulvaney that think yourself so strong by mary and the saints by blood and water and by every sorrow that came into the world since the beginning the black blight fall on you and yours so that you may never be free from pain for another when it's not your own may your heart bleed in your breast drop by drop with all your friends laughing at the bleeding strong you think yourself may your strength be a curse to you to drive you into the devil's hand against your own will clear-eyed you are may your eyes see clear every step of the dark path you take till the hot cinders of hell put them out may the raging dry thirst in my own old bones go to you that you shall never pass bottle full nor glass empty god preserve the light of your understanding to you my jewel of a boy that ye may never forget what you meant to be and do when you're wallowing in the muck may you see the better and follow the worse as long as there's breath in your body and may you die quick in a strange land watching your death before it takes you and unable to stir hand or foot i heard a scuffling in the room behind and then dinah shad's hand dropped into mine like a rose-leaf into a muddy road the half of that i'll take says she and more too if i can go home you silly talking woman go home and confess come away come away says judy pulling her mother by the shawl twas none of terence's fault for the love of mary stop the talking and you said old mother sheehy spinning round faunce dinah will you take the half of that man's load stand off from him dinah shad before he takes you down too you that look to be the quartermaster sergeant's wife in five years ye look too high child you shall wash for the quartermaster sergeant when he pleases to give you the job out of charity but a private's wife ye shall be to the end and every sorrow of a private's wife ye shall know and never a joy but one that shall go from you like the tide from a rock the pain of bearing ye shall know but never the pleasure of giving the breast and ye shall put away a man-child into the common ground with never a priest to say a prayer over him and on that man-child you shall think every day of your life think long dinah shad for you'll never have another though you pray till your knees are bleeding the mothers of children shall mock you behind your back when you're ringing over the wash-tub you shall know what it is to take a drunken husband home and see him go to the guard-room will that please you dinah shad that won't be seen talking to my daughter you shall talk to worse than judy before all's over the sergeant's wife shall look down on you contemptuous daughter of a sergeant and you shall cover it all up with a smiling face when your heart's bursting 
stand off him dinah shad for i've put the black curse of shaley on him and his own mouth shall make it good she pitched forward on her head and began foaming at the mouth dinah shad ran out with water and judy dragged the old woman into the veranda till she sat up i'm old and forlorn she says trembling and crying and tis like i say a dale more than i mane when you're able to walk go says old mother shad this house has no place for the likes of you that have cursed my daughter ay said the old woman hard words break no bones and dinah shad'll keep the love of her husband till my bones are green corn judy darlin i misremember what i came here for can you lend us the bottom of a teacup of tay mrs shad but judy dragged her off crying as though her heart would break and dinah shad and i in ten minutes we have forgot it all then why do you remember it now said i is it like i'd forget every word that wicked old woman spoke fell true in my life afterward and i could a stood it all stood it all except when little shad was born that was on the line of march three months after the regiment was taken with cholera we were between umbala and kalka then and i was on picket when i came off the women showed me the child and it turned on its side and died as i looked we buried him by the road and father victory was a day's march behind with the heavy baggage so the company captain read prayer and since then i've been a childless man and all else that old mother Sheehy put upon me and dinah shad what do you think sir i thought a good deal but it seemed better then to reach out for mulvaney's hand this demonstration nearly cost me the use of three fingers whatever he knows of his weaknesses mulvaney is entirely ignorant of his strength but what do you think he insisted as i was straightening out the crushed members my reply was drowned in yells and outcries from the next fire where ten men were shouting for authoress private authoress mr authoress dear boy captain authoress field marshal authoress stanley you paneth of pop come here to your own company and the cockney who had been delighting another audience with recondite and rabelaisian yarns was shot down among his admirers by the major force you've crumpled my dress shirt horrid said he and i shan't sing no more to this ere bloomin drawing-room learoyd roused by the confusion uncoiled himself crept behind authoress and raised him aloft on his shoulders sing ye bloomin hummingbird said he and authoress beating time on learoyd's skull delivered himself in the raucous voice of the ratcliffe highway of the following chaste and touching ditty my girl she give me the go on sit when i was a london lad and i went on the drunk for a fortnight and then i went to the bad the queen she gave me a shilling to fight for her over the seas but government built me a fever trap and india gave me disease chorus ho don't you read what a girl says and don't you go for the beer and i was an ass when i was at grass and that's why i'm mere i fired a shot at an afghan the beggar he fired again and i lay on my bed with a hole in my head and missed the next campaign i up with my gun at a burman who carried a bloomin' dar but the cartridge struck and the bayonet bruck and all i got was the scar chorus ho don't you aim at an afghan when you stand on the skyline clear 
and don't you go for a burman if none of your friends is near i served my time for a corporal and wetted my stripes with pop for i went to the bend with an intimate friend and finished the night in the shop i served my time for a sergeant the colonel he says no the most you'll be is a full c b and very next night twas so chorus ho don't you go for a corporal unless your ed is clear but i was an ass when i was at grass and that is why i'm here i've tasted the luck of the army in barrack and camp and clink and i lost my tip through a blooming trip along o the women and drink i'm down at the heel of my service and when i'm laid on the shelf my very worst friend from beginning to end by the blood of a mouse was myself chorus ho don't you read what a girl says and don't you go for the beer but i was an ass when i was at grass and that is why i'm here ay listen to our little man now singing and shouting as though trouble had never touched him do you remember when he went mad with the homesickness said mulvaney recalling a never-to-be-forgotten season when authoress waded through the deep waters of affliction and behaved abominably but he's talking the bitter truth though ay my very worst friend from beginning to end by the blood of a mouse was meself hark out he continued jumping to his feet what did i tell you so went the rifles of the picket in the darkness and we heard their feet rushing toward us as authoress tumbled past me and into his greatcoat it is an impressive thing even in peace to see an armed camp spring to life with clatter of accoutrements click of martini levers and blood-curdling speculations as to the fate of missing boots pickets driven in said mulvaney staring like a buck at bay into the soft slinging gloom stand by and keep close to us if tis cavalry they may blunder into the fires tra tra la sung the thrice blessed bugle and the rush to form square began there is much rest and peace in the heart of a square if you arrive in time and are not trodden upon too frequently the smell of leather belts fatigue uniform and unpacked humanity is comforting a dull grumble that seemed to come from every point of the compass at once struck our listening ears and little thrills of excitement ran down the faces of the square those who write so learnedly about judging distance by sound should hear cavalry on the move at night a high-pitched yell on the left told us that the disturbers were friends the cavalry of the attack who had missed their direction in the darkness and were feeling blindly for some sort of support and camping ground the difficulty explained they jingled on double pickets out there by your arms lie down and sleep and rest said the major and the square melted away as the men scrambled for their places by the fires when i woke i saw mulvaney the night dew gemming his moustache leaning on his rifle at picket lonely as prometheus on his rock with i know not what vultures tearing his liver end of section sixteen